What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the show. This is the Dance of Life podcast, where we share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we diligently study the Word of God. My name is Tudor Alexander, and I'm your servant in Christ. Today's topic is answering challenge verses. This is the final episode in a 10-part series on the topic of once saved, always saved, or eternal security. So if you're just joining, I highly recommend that you go check out the previous episodes. You can watch them or you can listen to them. Uh, There's a lot of material there for you to check out. I'm not going to be doing a review because we have a lot of verses to get into. There are a lot of challenge verses. So today's topic is really just answering all of these verses that seem to suggest that you can lose your salvation or that call into question the idea of eternal security, of predestination, all of the things that we've been talking about in the last several weeks. Um, So again, you can go check those out. There's going to be a lot of mentioning Of those topics, we're going to be talking about predestination of evil. We're going to be talking about the elect, the reprobate. If these things are foreign to you, then I highly suggest going and watching the series from the beginning or listening to it. Um, But we're just going to get right into it. My goal is to give you newfound clarity with all of these because I'm really going to survey quite a lot of verses. And we're also going to look at some um, biblical examples of people too, like King Saul. So the topics of today or I should say that the the themes that we're breaking all these verses up to, there's several themes. I'm just going to list them off. The first one is universalism, which is the idea that you know everybody's saved eventually. Uh, the next one is false converts. The next one after that is works-based verses that seem to suggest that we're working for our salvation and we have to work. Um, legalism, particularly having to do with the Hebrews at the time. Being cut off, right? Being blotted out. And then famous failures, which is, again, somebody like King Saul, Judas, and even the devil. So we're going to just jump right into it. The first theme is universalism. And I, I compare universalism with Arminianism, and I'll tell you why. Now, before you crucify me, just listen to this for a second. Universalism and Arminianism are actually similar in some aspects. Universalism is the idea that everybody is saved eventually. Okay, everybody is save no matter what their status is, somehow they're going to get redeemed, right? That's not biblical at all. It's it's not true. Because there's obviously a lot of people like Judas, for example, who died unrepentant and who were reprobate. So if you believe in predestination, if you believe in election, then you're okay with the fact that God, first off, none of us deserve anything, but God predestined some people to see his glory, to understand the cross, to come to Jesus to basically be regenerated by the Holy Spirit, to get new hearts. And some people, he did not do that. He left them be, right? So he predestined them to be reprobate because they needed to serve a purpose. If everybody had been saved, think about it this way, universalism, before we get into these verses. But it's not true because if everybody had saved, you'd have to start with Cain. And if Cain had been saved, however that would have happened, you would have never had the cross. So the reprobate, those who are evil and who will die unrepentant, they're necessary for this short blip of history before eternity. Okay, so now, Armenianism says that it's up to us to choose to have faith, and then God responds to us and provides us grace in accordance with that. So ultimately, it's our choice that can lead to salvation. Everybody has the opportunity to choose, but... You know, obviously not everybody chooses. Conversely, if you're the one who's choosing to be to have faith, you can also choose your way out of that situation too. So you can lose your salvation. 
So you see, it's a double-edged blade. You can't believe in Arminianism in that it's up to your free will to choose unless you also believe that you can lose your salvation, which is totally not biblical. And my hope is that throughout this series, and especially today, that you will see that that is not biblical at all, that you can lose your salvation. So how are these two different? Well, the difference is that Arminianism doesn't believe that everybody's going to be saved. That's obvious, and that's true. Nobody, you know, Not everybody's going to be saved. There's a lot of people who aren't going to be saved, more so than the people who are. Now, how are they the same? And this is the this is the part that, you know, maybe some people might reject at first, but just hear me out. They're the same because they both contradict the Trinity. And we're going to review this. We have reviewed it several times, but just the short bullet point is if if the Father predestined people and called them, which is throughout Scripture, especially the New Testament, if the Spirit sealed those people, right? But then Christ decided to die for everybody, even the ones who he knew would reject him, even the ones who the Father knew would reject him, then what does that say about the Trinity? There's discord in the Trinity. You see how that works? So the Trinity is not acting in union because Christ did one thing and the Father and the Spirit did another. So they both universalism, because universalism believes everybody's going to be saved, Right? But but that's not true. The Father called and, and chose only a certain amount of people to give to Christ. He didn't choose everybody. That's not in Scripture at all. So you see there's, there's a discordance in the Trinity. Now, the other thing that they have similar is that they believe the verses, and this is what's going to take us into the verses, is that they believe the verses that say all or the world are referring to everybody in the world. Both Arminianism, the belief that it's up to you, right? You got to choose. You got to make the right choice. And universalism, who believes that you know everybody's going to be saved, they both believe and read into Scripture. When when you see verses like John three sixteen, which is our first verse, God so loved the world, right? The world, everybody. They both see these verses as meaning everybody under the sun, which is not true. And I hope that I can show you with ample evidence that it is not true. Because again, if it is true, what does that say about God? What does that say about the Trinity? What does that say about predestination? What does that say about a lot of things? Right? If it's up to us to choose, remember the problems with free will. If it's up to us to choose and we can lose our salvation, you, you can't have choosing to have faith without being able to lose your salvation. These two things work together. And if that's true, what does that say about God? Right? What does it say that God can't keep you saved? What does it say that the whole Trinity is working to keep you saved, but then you somehow choose your way out of that? It's not the right view of God. Right? It's an open theist view, really, and open theism is is false. So John three sixteen, that's our first verse, and obviously that's a famous one. Everybody knows that one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so you know the this is famous for a reason because it's it's uh, it's very tolerant, right? It's, it's just so inspiring. Oh, the world, God so loved the world. He loved the world and he, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, whoever, you know, just activate that free will of yours and you're going to be able, be able to be saved. And so that's, that's the initial impression and it's very placating to the ego. That's why it's so popular. And of course, it's a, it's a good verse, but you know what? The whole chapter is good. 
you know, for God, if you read on to 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So, you know, it's it's a beautiful chapter and the rest of that doesn't really get quoted as much as John 3.16 because John 3.16 is very generalized. And again, it's taken out of context, I believe. So what's really going on here? Well, first and foremost, let's look at James 4.4. 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So first and foremost, what's really important to get from this is that the world and God are not friends. There's plenty of other scriptures that I didn't include in here, but the world is at odds with God. This is a cursed world. This is the world that the devil took over. If you're friends with the world, you can't be friends with God. If you're in the world and you're you know, all about worldly things, automatically you, you give up having a relationship with God necessarily, right? So, I mean, yes, you can be a Christian. You could be wrapped up in the world too much. But my point is you can't worship two masters, right? You can't have two masters. And that's, that's very clear. So John 3.16 now saying, for God so loved the world. Does that mean like God loves the world in the same sense that James 4, 4 is, is talking about? Or is there something else going on? Now, the, and the point is, first off, is that God loved the world not in the sense that the, the world is the object. The point of this phrase is, the point of this verse is God's love. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. Does that mean that he loved everybody in the world, that he loved this cursed world so much and that he, you know, has this universalist approach? No, the Bible tells us that he lives with indignation every single day, that he tolerates the wicked for the day of destruction you know, he has this great internal restraint that he's living with every single day, tolerating the evil that had to be ordained for the cross and for everything else to come to pass. So God didn't love the world. God didn't love the sinful world. That's not what this is saying. It's saying God is love. But if God is love, think, think again, you got to think about this critically. If God is love, how do we know that? Who did, who did God love from the beginning? He loved the Son. The Father loved the Son, and the Son loved the Father. And we know that the, son, the Father predestined reality as a gift to the Son. He gave him a kingdom, a people, a throne, and the Son obeyed that gift to, in, and came down and redeemed those people so that they could be in the presence of God. All of that makes sense from a predestined view. We are the gift, the love gift, from God the Father to God the Son. Okay, so of course, God is going to love the gift that he gave to his son. And the son is going to love the gift that he received from the father. See how that works? It all works with the election and predestination. When, when this verse says, whoever believes in him, or, you know, those who believe, it's not talking about universalism. There's one way to read it, and that's, again, you're reading libertarian free will from the Enlightenment era, from Enlightenment philosophy, of, of humanistic Luciferian philosophy, into this and saying, whoever believes, whoever just happens to, you know, undo their 
programming and total depravity and just makes that leap of faith, God's going to respond to you. Well, first off, that makes God super biased because he's responding to only people who believe. Rather than taking the dead and regenerating their heart and showing his glory through that. See how that works? So it's not whoever believes. Whoever believes is not saying whoever in the world happens to overcome their total depravity and have faith. That's not what it's saying. It's saying, so there's two ways to read this. It's either the free will way to read it, which is incorrect, because the authors of the Bible did not believe in free will, libertarian free will. Or there's, God is proclaiming what's happening, right? Whoever believes is going to be saved. Do the elect believe? Yes. Those who are not elect, do they believe? No. They're condemned already, just like the scripture says a few verses later. So it is, is it saying everybody in the world who activates their free will? Or is it proclaiming exactly what's happening or going to happen? Whoever believes is going to be saved. This is the proclamation. That's when we go proclaim the gospel. You're not selling the gospel. You're not trying to convince people. You're proclaiming it. Those who have been chosen to hear it and to to not see it as foolishness will respond to those words. Those who do, well, or those who don't respond, then they're reprobate. Now, again, we don't know who who is elect and who's reprobate, so it's not up to us to say, oh, you see, that guy didn't really respond to my evangelism, so he must be reprobate. That's not true either. But the point is that those who don't respond and willfully reject it and end up dying in their sins, yeah, they're reprobate. We know that. And even then, we still don't know who God's going to show mercy to in the end. But I'll draw your attention to John 17, verses 6 through 9. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. Verse 8, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in the in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. Here we go. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I mean, what's going on here? It's very clear. The Father gave, did he give everybody? No, he gave certain people to Christ. Who is Christ praying for? He's not praying for the world. He himself said it. He's praying for them, for the people who he's been given. Why Why would he pray for people he knows have already been predestined to reject him? That doesn't make any sense. The cross was already like, uh, you know, he despised the shame of the cross and the sin of becoming sin for us. Why would Christ put that on for people that would reject him, that he knew omnisciently would reject him? No, he put that on for the elect who we have sin, but we've been predestined to be redeemed. And that is the joy that was set before him. And so ultimately, when John 3.16 talks about God so loved the world, that whoever, uh, what's the word here? I always get these, I don't want to get it wrong. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life, right? So ultimately, when John talks about this, he's not talking about everybody in the world who's going to have faith and free will and all this stuff. It's very clear if you read this in context and from other verses that it is talking about, first off, God's love, who's God's love first and foremost, for his son and the son for the father. 
And then how is that expressed? Well, it's expressed through the cross, through the elect, through the redemption of the elect. That's the love that's going on. And the world is not the entire world. Friendship with the world is not is uh, enmity with God. So it's very clear that even Christ said that he's not praying for the world, he's praying for the elect. That's very important. So this is not talking about that. It's talking about God's love, and it's making a matter-of-fact statement that whoever believes in him will be saved. That's the legality of the, the new covenant. That's what it's saying. It's proclaiming the new covenant. Whoever believes is going to be saved. Versus, if you do these things, you're going to be saved. See how that works? It's a, it's a covenantal proclamation. Very different way of thinking about it. But again, you have to see it from the top-down view. You have to see it from God's perspective, not from our humanistic, libertarian, free will perspective. Let's keep going, because we have a lot of verses to cover, and they're all really good ones. 1 John 2, uh, verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Here we go again. Again, what is what is this talking about in the context of what we just reviewed? Well, the whole world is the elect. It's the people who come to Christ. It's the people that were chosen out of the world and given to Christ. Who is John writing to? Is he writing to the reprobate? No, he's writing to the elect. So when he's writing these things, he's not saying the whole world, whoever ends up using their free will, he didn't believe in those things. They didn't have that concept 2,000 years ago. Romans 3.25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So the propitiation that John is talking about is to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Okay, are there elect in other parts of the world? The answer is yes. Are there people who still need to come to Christ that have been chosen throughout time? Yes. The world is who the, the Father chose to give to the Son throughout time. It's not the entire world and everybody has a chance and if you don't you know, activate your free will, then you just missed your chance. That's not what it's saying here. It is the propitiation is received by faith. But who is, again, this is where context is so important. Who is responsible for that faith? The gift of God is grace, but it's grace by faith. God is giving you the ability to believe. That is the whole point of predestination and election. Without God intervening and regenerating your heart so that you can experience faith and be saved, you wouldn't be saved. You don't. We don't have that ability in and of ourselves. And this is the where the great debate is, but I don't really see a debate if you really are honest with Scripture, right? And so ultimately, the propitiation for the whole world, which is received by faith, is talking about the propitiation for the elect, the people who are chosen to be throughout time, to be with Christ, not everybody in the whole world, but the world as in all the people who are going to come from different parts of the world as elect. And the propitiation is received by faith. So who is responsible for the faith? It's the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see that in the coming verses. Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Here we go. Now, what what are we talking about here? So this is, this is again, one of those things where it's, Context is king, as always, right? 
Is it talking about all people or is it talking all kinds of people in the church? Okay, let's look at, if you look earlier in this chapter at Titus 2, teach sound doctrine. Let's, let's read a couple of verses, starting with verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech, and cannot and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say to us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Okay, so we just went through bond servants, young men, young women, older men, older women. Now we have Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. What is the all talking about? Is it talking about everybody and you have a free will chance to, to just activate that grace? No, it's in the context of this whole lesson that he's giving to Titus about teaching sound doctrine. It's, he's saying, you know, you got to, this certain amount of people, certain people need to do this, you know, young people need to do that, older people need to do this, bond servers need to do that. You know, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for everybody, training us to renounce ungodliness, right? So the grace of God is for all kinds of people in the church, different kinds, not just young people, not just old people, not just free people, not just slaves, right? Training us to renounce ungodliness. So the context of this is all kinds of people. It's not for every person that's lived in history because that's not true. First off, there's a lot of people by this point, by the point that this letter was written, there has been already millions, probably who knows how many in history that already died unrepentant, right? For all people. And if that's the case, then what does that say about God? That again, he intended those people to be saved, but he couldn't save them. It doesn't make any sense. Let's keep going. 2 Peter 3.9. Another another pretty popular one. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but, his, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Again, is this teaching that everybody's saved or that everybody has the opportunity to be saved? Is that what it's teaching? Or is it talking about the elect? the elect coming to repentance. Remember the parable of the wheat and the tares. We talked about this in the episode on the parables and how there's predestination throughout those parables. And if you look at the wheat and the tares, the last couple verses, he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, this is Matthew 13, 28, by the way. So the servant said to him, then you, then do you want us to go and gather them? This is the, the weeds. But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Here we go. Let both grow together until the harvest. 
And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. This is a very powerful parable on this exact thing about all should come to repentance. It's not everybody in the world that God is waiting for to come to repentance, because first off, again, a lot of people have died unrepentant. They could care less about God. So what is this saying? Well, in the context of this parable and other things that we've talked about, God is waiting that everybody who he has ordained through time and space, this limited period of time before eternity, where things had to be fulfilled, there were elect that were born in the beginning, and there's going to be elect that are born in this final generation. God is waiting for those to be regenerated in his timing. Just like in, in the parable of the weeds and the wheat, there's like, should we pluck the should we pluck them out? He said, no, let them grow together until the harvest. What is the harvest? It's about the final judgment. When the rapture comes and you know the judgments are poured out and all that stuff is happening. That's the harvest, the harvest of souls. God's waiting for everything to, to bloom until that point in time. So that's what this is saying. You have to view it from the from the perspective of election. Remember, the gospel is not something we are trying to sell or persuade. It's something we proclaim. When you put the living water of the gospel on the seed of faith that God has planted, that seed is going to sprout. Now, some people will say, well, this is this dispositional will. God's dispositional will. He has different wills. His decree will is, you know, the things that he decrees, but then he has the dispositional will where it shows God's attitudes on things. That, you know, he he desires all that come to repentance, but, you know, that's not a decree. Well, I don't think that's what it's saying here either. I don't think so at all. Because again, what does that say about God? We have to ask these questions. Anytime you have a, a, a theology or an idea or an interpretation, you have to ask yourself, what does it say about God if I believe this? What does it say about God if I believe that he desires all, all the people should come to repentance, but gosh, you know, he just can't seem to make it happen for most of them. What does that say about God? That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is called the God of salvation. He's called the God of salvation for a reason, because he saves. We talked about this in all the previous episodes, especially the one on God doing the work, which I think was the second or third. But he's called God of salvation because he saves. Yeshua, God saves not God offers the opportunity to save or God has a desire to save. That's not, that's weakness. That's not the God that we know in the Bible. The God that we know in the Bible is irresistible. If he chooses to save you, he will save you. That's why he's called God of salvation. You know, Ezekiel thirty-three eleven is another verse that people use to say, well, he has got dispositional will and, you know, and so it goes, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Again, is this, is this teaching that God is just kind of sitting there in, in his throne room and saying, gosh, I hope you do the right thing, and he's kind of shaking his fist at Israel? Or, or is it saying something else? Is it saying that he has a dispositional will where he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live, that he's hoping that those people just make the right choice? Is that what this is saying? Absolutely not. It's saying two things. It's saying, first off, it's true that he doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. 
He has no pleasure in the evil that he had to ordain for the cross and therefore for all of reality in this short period of time. He lives with indignation every day. He's restraining himself for the sake of the elect every day. That's true. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He takes no pleasure in in, in enacting justice and bringing evil upon people and evildoers to, to recompense them. He takes no pleasure in that. The other thing it's saying is that he takes pleasure that the wicked turn from his way and live. When people repent, he takes pleasure in that. But again, in the context of all of Scripture, does that mean he takes pleasure in us using our free will and him responding to that free will? Or is he taking pleasure in redeeming the wicked? The elect, before they're redeemed, they're wicked. We're all wicked. We all lived in sin until God regenerated our hearts in his sovereign timing. So does he take pleasure in us making the right choice? Is, is that what it says? Is that centering upon man and, and giving us this humanistic philosophy? I don't think so. I think what it's saying, which is very clear from all of Scripture, is that God takes pleasure in taking a heart of stone and turning it into a heart of flesh. Now this verse is about God. It's not about us. And that's why, again, you know, it's so humbling to talk about predestination, to believe in it, because you can't take any credit. So, again, Ezekiel thirty-three eleven is not showing dispositional will in the sense that he wants, you know, the wicked to be saved, but gosh, I hope you make the right choice. No, God is saying he doesn't take any pleasure in evil, in the evil that he had to ordain, and he takes pleasure in redeeming the wicked. Who, who is doing the redeeming? That's clear. It's God that's doing the redeeming. Right, so in back to this verse that all should come to repentance, God is not waiting for people to make the right choice. If He would wait for people to right make the right choice, that would never happen. Remember one of the first episodes we did with all the people who had so much doubt about God, Moses, David, you know, everybody who who just had so the apostles, the prophets, they all had doubt. If, if God had responded to their free will, quote-unquote, we wouldn't have had the Bible. We wouldn't have had anything. <laughs> Think about that. If, if God had waited around for people's free will to fulfill prophecy, prophecy would have never happened. So you can't have prophetic things. You can't have, you know, this whole choosing people to, to do his will if you have libertarian free will, it doesn't go hand in hand. So the, the question is, there's no re- libertarian free will. So then what does that mean when we read these verses? It means something other than what we think it means because we're projecting all of this independent-minded Western world thinking into Scripture that was written 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, where they didn't believe in libertarian free will. So keep that, keep that in mind. Okay, we got one more in this category of universalism and and free will and Armenians. It's Romans 10, uh, verses 11 through 13. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Again, is this teaching universalism? Hopefully by now you, you can read these differently. Don't read them with the instinct you have, which again, we've been programmed. And I think, you know, there's there's a design by that. That's, that's Satan's design. That we've been programmed to read free will into everything. 
because free will is a lie of the devil. This whole libertarian, you know, you can choose because that's tied to the works-based slave pyramid. All the works-based religions, Catholicism, I mean, even the pagan religion, you know, Hinduism, Judaism, Islam, they're all based on free will. Do you see that? Do you see that trend in how it's so different from the true gospel of predestination? The gospel is the only one that teaches predestination and that God's doing the work and he's regenerating your heart. And yes, we're participating in life, but, you know, God is doing the work. That's the true gospel. The other religions, which are all inspired by the devil, right? They're all based on this idea that you need to choose. You can choose what's good and evil. You can be like God. And if it's up to you to choose, then you're the one doing the work. And it's up to you. You got to keep running through the rat race of the sacrificial system and doing all this work so you can be saved because you might lose your salvation. You see how that works? It's all tied together. So when, when these things, when these verses say, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, it's not saying everybody in the world who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Remember, eight, first off, the Romans is rot. It's, it's rife with predestination. It's filled with predestination. Romans 10 comes after Romans 8 and 9, where he talks about foreknowledge and calling and drawing and predestining. So you can't take this out of context and say suddenly it's teaching Arminianism or universalism. Compare this to Romans first Romans 1, verse 16. For I am not, the righteous shall live by faith, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So is this talking about everybody who strives in and of themselves with their free will to believe? Or again, is it making a matter-of-fact legal statement about the covenant? Is it saying everybody who finds that, man, that special part in you that somehow had faith and billions of people didn't, those people who believe God's going to respond to them and God's going to save them with the gospel? I don't think so. What it's saying is a matter-of-fact statement. Everybody who believes, because the gospel is based on faith, will be saved. If you believe, though, who's doing the work? That's the question. That's been the major question of this entire series. First off, the letters were written to who? They were written to believers. Paul is all the time talking about predestination. And let's take a look at the the 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, spiritual gifts. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one, here it is, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Nobody can have faith unless the Holy Spirit regenerates your heart so that you can have faith and confess Christ as Lord and King. Remember also 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, there is so much in just this little sentence here. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. That The reprobate, they don't have the ability, even before you were regenerated, the word of the cross was folly. It was not interesting to you. It was, you, know, you didn't see a need to be saved. We were just like the reprobate. The difference is, what's the difference? The difference is God's work in your life. The second part of this verse, verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 1, but to us who are being saved, 
That's a very interesting way of putting it, who are being saved. You're not saving yourself. You're being saved. It is the power of God. It's God who's saving you and regenerating your heart so you can't have faith. So when we go back to Romans 10, verse 11 through 13, and in verse 13 it says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Yes, this is true. Everybody who calls on the name of the Lord genuinely will be saved. But wait a minute. You can't just stop there. You've got to read in context. Who are the people who call on the name of the Lord? The elect, the people who can call on the name of the Lord, do so through the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that's acting in your life to help you call on the name of the Lord. You can't do it otherwise. Matthew 16, verse 17. And Jesus answered him, this is after Peter confessed the Christ. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So the Father revealed that Jesus is God to Peter. Even Peter, who was there with him, a disciple, you know, by, by this point he'd seen miracles, he'd hung out with Jesus, he, they've talked, he still didn't get it. So what does that say about us who are like born in this, you know, crazy end times world and have literally no chance to make the right choice? Do you see that? Do you see how Peter being that close to Jesus still had to have the father divinely work in his life to pull away the blinders and say, wow, I get it now. Jesus is God. I didn't see that before, even though I was hanging out with him and, you know, all these other things were happening. Miracles. He got to hear Christ speak and listen to his words. He still didn't get it. Because the point is that God has to show you. God has to do the work. That's the independent variable. and That's what gives glory to God. It's not you, so you can rob glory from God. It's God that's doing the work. That way God gets the glory. That's the whole point. <laughs> so, again, when all who call the name will, all who call the name of the Lord will be saved, like in verse 13, it's not talking about everybody in history and everybody who has the opportunity to call on him. No, it's talking about the people who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Correct. It's a legal statement. Who is who are those people? The people who God regenerates. Very clear from scripture. Now, the next topic is false converts. And again, these are just there there's so many of these. I've picked out a few of them. The first one is Matthew 7 verse 21. Very popular verse, I never knew you. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This is, you know, we talked about this in the previous episode when we went over some big questions. One of them was the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unforgivable sin, and how you can't commit that. You know, there's people who are false converts, people who, like the Pharisees, who outwardly appear righteous, but they're they're not. They're evil. And so... This is this is not talking about, you know, you, you, the one who does the will of my father, as if, <clears throat> as if that's something that we have to discern in and of ourselves and hope that we get right. That's not what this is talking about. Works are not about getting. You don't get saved through works. The whole point of this verse in context is that, is that those who try to do works, Lord, do we not cast many demons out in your name? Do we not do any mighty works in your name? People who are all these false prophets of today, false teachers throughout history, 
those people are the ones who are getting rebuked because they never cared about God. They just cared about status and power, just like the Pharisees, right? So God never knew them. First and foremost, how long has Jesus been alive? Forever. He's self-existing. He knows his sheep. We know, so let's put a couple of pieces of evidence together. He knows his sheep and they know his voice. He has existed throughout all of time. God the Father predestined some people from the beginning of time to give to Jesus. So did Jesus know those people? Yes, he did. The other ones who God the Father did not predestine, the reprobate, did Jesus know them? No, he never knew them. He knew the elect from beginning from the beginning of time because all that was predestined. But he didn't know the unelect. That's number one. Number two is there's a lot of false converts, false prophets, false teachers. And God uses people however he wills, right, for various things. I mean, Balaam is an example where, you know, he was, he's a reprobate. He's spoken about very poorly in the Bible, but God still used him to prophesy, right? So you see, that didn't make him saved just because he prophesied for God. God was using him. Even, in fact, there's a, there's this, a bit in the story there where, where Balaam is running to, to do the prophecy to, to the king of Moab, I believe, and he's on a donkey, and the angel of the Lord is standing there, but he can't see the angel of the Lord. The donkey can see the angel of the Lord. <laughs> and there's this, this whole almost kind of bizarre interchange where the donkey is given the ability to speak, not just the ability to see, but the ability to speak. And the donkey's like, you know, why, why are you hitting me? You know, there's, you're, there's an angel there. And so God is humiliating and humbling Balaam, showing him, listen, if I can give a donkey the ability to see and speak, don't take your, you know, don't take your gift of prophecy or whatever I'm giving you here temporarily as, as anything. I can use whatever I want for my purposes. You know, in Jeremiah 27, verse 6, Nebuchadnezzar is called the servant of God. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. So Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. And that, he was still the servant of God in some sense, right? He's, God is using him to do whatever he wants. So this verse is not about, man, I hope you activate your will and, and you do the right thing. God revealed himself to the Israelites. Here's another example. God revealed himself to the Israelites, and they still sinned over and over again. In Deuteronomy 5, chapter chapter 5, verse 2, the Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of, who are all of us here alive today. What is that talking about? That's talking about people who even though the Israel was a chosen people, there's a remnant. There's an actual elect. Many are called, but few are chosen. I might be mixing that up, but it's a parable of the wedding feast. But that was the point. You know, Christ was rebuking the Pharisees that they thought they were the elect. That's how they acted. Oh, I we're chosen. We're righteous. But they were the opposite, right? And so... This is what this whole verse is commenting on in the broader the context of Scripture is that there are these people like the Pharisees or the false prophets or the false teachers or people who even do miracles 
who use that to to create their status and power and to be you know puffed up that they're the chosen ones when they're not. I you know Christ is saying I never knew you. That's a very strong rebuke. And and again, what's the will of the Father? Let's let's look at that. John six verse thirty nine through forty. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So before you read free will into this, remember, he should lose nothing of all that he has given me. The sheep know his voice. The sheep were given to Christ before time began. So... Those people are who these verses are talking about. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. Everyone who's been given to Christ, who has to be born and go through life and be regenerated and ends up believing in Christ, will be saved and resurrected. It's a proclamation. It's not saying everybody has the opportunity and if you don't make the right choice, you're, you're screwed. That's not what this is about. It's about having a relationship so when Matthew 7.21 says, he who does the will of my Father, it's about having a relationship with Christ, a genuine relationship, not doing mighty, mighty works or, you know, whatever, exercising demons or creating miracles because false prophets can do that. Remember the, the prophets with Moses or the, whatever, the magicians in Pharaoh's court? They were able to replicate some of the miracles that God was doing through Moses. Up to a point, obviously, but the point is that your works, <laughs> your works and your external things do not determine whether you're saved or not. It's your relationship. Now, what determines your relationship? Is it your free will to choose to believe in God? No. It's God's choice for you to have a relationship with him. That's what this is all about. It is God's choice for you to have a relationship with him. Again, John 10, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So there's people that he knows, and there's people that he never knew. The only way to read that is through election and predestination. That makes perfect sense. When you try to do biblical gymnastics and philosophical gymnastics, to be PC and and sort of have this social justice that everybody has the opportunity to be saved, you run into some serious problems. Look at earlier in that, John 6, verse 64 through 66. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. So this is where he's talking about eat my flesh, drink my blood, and, and some people just you know, couldn't handle it because they weren't elect. They didn't see the truth. The cross was foolishness to them because they're perishing. And he also knew Judas who was going to betray him. So he knew who were those who were not going to believe. So ask yourself this. If he knows that omnisciently, of course he has to. He's God. How can he then die for those people? How can he then offer them the opportunity to be saved when they're not going to respond because they weren't chosen? They can't. It's impossible for them. What does that say about Christ's relationship to the Father? It, it says discord in the Trinity, so it doesn't make any sense. And again, this is about, this is about for us as elect distinguishing and not being fooled by false prophets because there's going to be many people who do lots of mighty works and claim to do various things and claim power and status 
but that doesn't mean that they're saved. Claiming anything doesn't mean that you're saved. Having a relationship with God, a genuine one, through faith is what saves you. But who's responsible for that relationship? It's God. It's not you. Of course, once you've been saved, you do have responsibilities, right? We have we're encouraged to participate. And we'll get to that very shortly here as we talk about works and salvation. But that's again in the context of predestination. Predestination and participation can go hand in hand. They're not mutually exclusive. So let's keep going. One Timothy first Timothy uh verse four from the beginning. So four verse one through a couple of verses, but we'll just probably stick with one because it says, now the spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. We can go on through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. What is this about? This is about the falling away. Some will depart from the faith. That's the title of the chapter. The question is, does this prove that you can lose your salvation? Who departs from the faith? Is it the elect that are departing from the faith? The people who God chose and redeemed, and then their free will is undoing what God did? No, the answer is no. The answer is that the people who are departing are the false converts. Again, this is about false converts people who do the many mighty works or who claim to be saved or who go to church because it makes them feel good, not because of the who God is, right? People who deconstruct their faith because they get disillusioned with the church or they don't understand God's character when suffering comes by, right? Those are the false converts. Remember the parable of the sower. Okay, what are the different types of seeds that are sown and what's happening? Well, first off, you got the thorns and thistles, right, that choke the life out of the seed, and that represents the cares of the world. People who have faith, but, or let me say, they show faith, but in the end, they get choked away by the world and distractions, and they want to live in the world. Remember, friend, friendship with the world is enmity with God. And then you have the seeds that were, you know, burned by the sun, They had a little bit of a sprout, but then the sun came, tribulation, suffering, and they deconstructed their faith. They were false converts. They were never saved to begin with. You had also the seeds where the birds came and got them. That's Satan getting them right away. And those are just, you know, again, reprobate. These are different kinds of reprobate. Reprobate are not just people who are, you know, like Stalin, who are just morbidly evil. The reprobate, the people who are not chosen to be saved, are people who are also false converts, who end up, you know, showing the signs of being saved, kind of like the Pharisees. Again, Pharisees, to the outside, seem like they were righteous. Oh, they knew everything, and, you know, they're doing all the right things, but they were evil. They're never saved. They rejected God. They didn't want a relationship with God. They wanted to rely on their own righteousness. In the same way, these false converts, they, they love the ego they get from the identity of being a Christian or the power of being a false teacher or you know having a following. These things are not, they may seem initially like some outward signs of fruit, but you have to have discernment. These people were never saved to begin with. So that's what it's talking about. Again, false converts. Let's keep going. We got one more in this category, and this is Colossians 1, 21 through 23. And you who 
Once we're alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So again, (laughs) these things can so easily be taken out of context. If indeed you continue in the faith. What does that mean? Does that mean that, you know, gosh, you better work your salvation or you're going to lose it? Is that what he's saying? Remember, Paul is the one who wrote Romans, all about predestination and foreknowledge and calling, you know, and the predestination of the cross. So is that what he's, is he contradicting himself? Is, is he thinking differently here? No, the answer is no. If indeed you continue in the faith, this is about a couple things. First off, in the context of the previous verses, like Matthew seven twenty one, in the context of First John two nineteen, where we say they here's here's another one. Actually, we didn't review this one, but First John two nineteen, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Warning against Antichrist. This is about people who left the faith, right? People who went out. So in the context of this and Matthew 7.21, what does this mean if you continue in the faith? Well, there were a lot of false converts in that time. Are there a lot of false converts today? Absolutely. The church is full of rife, full of false converts, rife with false converts, because the church as a whole has become very deceived. Biblical Christianity is is like a minimal, minimal percentage of Christianity. Most of Christianity, look at Catholicism. Catholicism is a heresy. Eastern Orthodoxy, same thing. Mormonism, the prosperity gospel. You just add those together. You have millions and you have probably over a billion people that are being deceived. Now, I don't know if they're going to be saved or not. Ultimately, it's not for us to decide because individual people versus what those religions teach is a different story. But the religions themselves, those things are heresies. They're deceiving people, right? And so in Paul's time, there were there were false teachers, false prophets, false converts. So he's he's giving a warning, right? He's giving a warning in that, hey, if you indeed continue in the faith, as in the sense that if you're not false, those who are false will not continue in the faith. Those who are truly regenerated will continue. So again, it's all in the context of these different verses. It's not about use your free will to you know, keep working your salvation or you might lose it. You got to maintain it. That's what it boils down to, right? If you believe that you can, if you believe that you have to I have to word this carefully. If you believe that it's up to you to choose to have faith and God responds to you, then again, the thing that comes with that, the double-edged sword, is that you can lose your salvation. That's not biblical because what that means automatically is you have to work to maintain your salvation. If you have the opportunity to lose it and it's on you, there's no way to get around the fact that you have to do something to maintain your salvation. But scripture is very clear that 
Christ maintains our salvation. He's interceding for us. The Spirit is convicting us of righteousness. He's sanctifying us. He's the guarantee of our inheritance. The Father is drawing us and calling us. He's predestined us. The whole Trinity, the whole episode we did on the Trinity is very clear. So all these verses, Matthew 7, 21, 1 Timothy 4, Colossians 1, you know, even 1 John 2, 19, all these things we went over, it's all about false converts. Because part of the reprobate, the people who God chose not to save, are people who are false converts, false teachers, false converts, false prophets. They're part of the reprobate. The reprobate are not just these evil, you know, frothing at the mouth, you know, killers. There are people who are false converts. And and as you'll see, it's about testing yourself so you know you have assurance of salvation. Okay, the next category is works and salvation. This is there's a lot of good ones here that you probably have heard. Very hotly debated, but again, if if you really are honest with scripture, there's not much debate. Philippians two, uh, verse twelve through thirteen. Very very popular one. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, usually they don't quote that part, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So I just kind of refuted it for you because most of the time they don't quote verse 13. But this is, you know, let, let's, this is such a popular one, and I want to present you with a few verses first from the Old Testament. First Samuel 25, verse 32. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. Keep that in mind. First Chronicles 13, 8 through 10. And David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. And when they came to the threshing floor of Shedon, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark, for the ox, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. So, what's happened here? Well, first off, David was trying to move the ark on his own. He didn't follow procedure, and obviously God made the oxen stumble so he could prove a point and enact punishment. Uzzah, was not, you're not supposed to touch the ark. And so God killed Uzzah, and David was afraid after this. He realized his error. So what's the point here? Even if the ark was stumbling, you know, you're trying to work out the salvation, you're punished. You don't do things your own way. Look at 1 Samuel 13, verse 8. Saul's unlawful sacrifice. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him, so he started getting insecure. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, (laughs) and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed. The Philistines had mustered them at Mishmash. You know, he basically got insecure. He said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. 
So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. He forced himself to get the favor of the Lord. He's trying to work his own salvation. Numbers 20, verse 7 through 12. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So he's he's telling Moses specific instructions how to deal with the rock and with water. He's tell the, the rock to yield its water. What does Moses do? He strikes the rock. Then Moses, this is verse 10, then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, here now you rebels, shall we, first off he took credit, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Instead of saying, shall God bring water? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly. So again, all these four examples, what do they prove? They prove that it was a major sin to work out your salvation. To, 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 to basically, again, to affront God, to insult God, who is the God of salvation, to say that I'm going to do it myself. That was a huge sin in the Old Testament. And obviously people got punished for it. David got punished, Uzzah, Saul got punished, Moses got punished, he got prevented from going to the promised land for doing what he did. And so the question is, if the Hebrews believed that, you know, that it was this huge sin to work out your salvation, do you think that this suddenly would have changed with the New Testament? The answer is no, it would not have changed. Now, compare this to one verse in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9. Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Which is true. But by, Verse 10, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So here we go. Here's again that, that predestination. God is doing the work. And participation. The mystery of the, the duality of those two things, right? Where do we draw the line? I don't know. Maybe there is no line. But when you try to, when you try to draw the line, you're putting God in a box and saying, this is where God's sovereign will ends and my sovereign will begins. You can't do that. Paul says, I worked harder than any of them. But wait a minute. Though it was not I, it was not I who worked, but the grace of God that is with me. It was God's grace that worked, although I participated in that work. Do you see how that works? (laughs) He's not taking credit for the work. Why? Because, again, the Old Testament people didn't, that was a major sin to, to think that you could be so high and mighty that you could take salvation into your hands or you could create any good of your own hands. So why would that change? So keep that in mind. Now, if we go back to Philippians 2, verse 12, There's one thing, again, there's two actually two things that are very often ignored. The next verse, which is verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That right there refutes the whole thing that you need to work for your salvation or you have the sense that you need to maintain it. For it is God who works in you both to to will, meaning to to do the, the willing, it's not your free will, and to work for his good pleasure. He's doing the work for his own good pleasure. But that's that's the first thing. The other thing is therefore, the word therefore. When you see this word, you always have to look at the things before it to see what happened. 
Why, this is a linking word to the to the previous chapter, right? Or the previous section. So let's see what happened in the previous section. What is the entire section? It's Christ's example of humility. And it goes talking about how Christ humbled himself to become, you know, lesser than the angels, to be basically a homeless beggar for our sake so that, you know, he could die on a cross, he could get tortured so that we could be redeemed. That's the whole section before this, Christ's example of humility, the tantamount example in history. Therefore, (laughs) my beloved, therefore, meaning because of all of this, because Christ died for you and he atoned for you, and it's complete, and your, excuse me, and your salvation has been purchased at at the highest price possible. Therefore, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Here's the sandwich, for it is God who is working in you. So you've got a, a single verse that seems to suggest we have to do something, which is true. We do have to do something. But you have to read it in the context of the sandwich. The sandwich is, therefore, because God already bought your salvation, it's, it's finished. And at the end, because God is working through you, like you can't get any more certain than that. Therefore, go for it. Participate fully in this experience. Remember, predestination and participation are not mutually exclusive. They're not. God wants us to participate. Right? And think about you know a, a bride. The church is often compared to, to a bride, Christ's bride. Here's a, here's a very important question for you. Does the bride get ready because she's hoping the groom will accept her on the wedding day? No, of course not. That's preposterous. The bride is getting ready because she's gotten accepted. She's been accepted when he asked her to marry him. Well, Christ asked the church to marry him. That's the whole new covenant. This is the whole thing why we're the bride of Christ getting prepared. We are getting prepared because we already have been accepted. We've been saved. You can't lose that status. You get prepared and you get ready because you've been saved. Yes, you still have to get prepared. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not work out your salvation as in maintain it or hope you get it. It's you've been given this precious gift of eternal life. Go, work it out. Go, you know, learn, make mistakes. See what God has to offer for you. Participate in your callings and your gifts because you've been purchased at a high price. So that's what all this means. Compare this to 1 Timothy verse 4, sorry, chapter 4, verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is another one that to me it's it's kind of related, kind of related, kind of different, but ultimately what is it saying? Is it saying like you gotta keep watch so you can save, you know, those who are listening, you can also save yourself. It's not talking about salvation here. What is the again, what is the title of this section or chapter? A good servant of Christ Jesus. It's talking, he's talking about Timothy. First off, Timothy is an apprentice. He's learning the ways, right? So this is talking about you know, like verse 11, for example, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. So Paul is trying to coach him on how to take the reins. So 
when he's saying for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. It's not saying you're going to save people like Christ is saving people. We're not talking about salvation. It's not a salvation discussion. It's saving yourself from error, saving your hearers from error, from mistakes in Scripture. So again, context is everything. Context is everything. And there is a participation that we have to do. Timothy obviously is being coached to participate and to help people learn and speak the truth and, and know the truth. But there's also the, the side of it that's predestined. He can't fail because God is working through him, just like Philippians 12 says. It's God who's willing and working through you because he saved you. Do you see that? You're just a vessel. You're in the middle. Before that was what? Christ saving you? What's after that? God will and he's willing and working through you. You're the conduit that he's, the vessel that he's chosen to work through. And it's a beautiful thing because that means you can't lose your salvation. Okay, next one is James 2, another popular one, James 2, 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith without works is dead. Oh my goodness, we need to have works, otherwise we can't be saved. And look, I mean, I got into some, I was Eastern Orthodox, that was my original upbringing. And one of the things that really, I remember I got into this debate with a priest who was, sending out homilies saying, you know, if you don't fast, you're not going to be saved. I was like, really? Is that what the Bible teaches? Is that what the gospel teaches? And it, and it led to, you know, it led to, you know, a big disagreement, obviously, but it helped me see the truth at that point that the faith that I had been brought up in wasn't the truth. Just like Catholicism, just like Mormonism, just like all these works-based religions. Faith without works is dead, which is what a lot of these religions use as justification is probably one of the most misinterpreted verses there are on this topic. First off, what is the context? What is the context of this verse? The context, let's, well, let's look at the top of the chapter. So this face without works is dead. But then before that, the sin of partiality, the sin of partiality. James was writing to a community that was being partial to people who are rich Again, people were all about the external stuff, just like the Pharisees. They were they were showing partiality. So if you were rich, you got to sit in the front. They weren't helping the poor. They weren't really showing true fruits. They had all the outward signs of faith, like maybe they had a church and gathering, and you know they were doing certain things. But they weren't really showing true faith because their works testified against them. So the whole chapter that leads up to this statement that says, he says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He, James is talking about what is, what is true work? What is true faith? Faith that's true will lead you to doing good things, like helping the poor, not being partial. I mean, throughout the Old Testament, one of the things that God consistently says is to stop being partial. You know, give good justice. Give justice to the poor and to the widow. So partiality is, is a big one. And James is talking about treating your uh, neighbor as yourself, loving your neighbor as yourself. He says that works can't be separated from faith, and it's true. If you have genuine faith, you will have the, a new heart with new desires. You are going to do different things. You're going to help the poor. You're going to be. You're going to try to be kinder. You're going to, you know, have fellowship with other Christians. You're going to restrain yourself. You're not going to do certain things you used to do. You have genuine faith right? 
It's not your works that save you. Your works are not, your faith that saves you. Your works are not proof to God or, or some ledger that you're acquiring works on. That's not what's happening. They're proof to you that your faith is genuine. Look at your life genuinely. Test yourself, right? Faith that is just in words, that is just, you know, oh, I'm claiming this. Again, I'm going back to this whole thing from the very beginning. Once saved, always saved is not saying, oh, I'm saved. Or, oh, I had a baptism at this church and now I feel part of the community and I'm saved. I'm always saved so I can go out and party all I want. That's not what once saved, always saved is. Once saved, always saved is not claiming to be saved. It's not based on the works you do. However, the works will testify against you or for you, right? If the pattern of your works is, you know, not consistent with what your faith is, then that's something to look at. And the people who are elect will look at that and the conscience will afflict you and you'll say, gosh, you know, I do need to fix that. You know, and you work on, uh, you know, my partiality or my anger or my stinginess or whatever, my lust, all these things that we constantly struggle with, right? And, and we're always going to struggle with them until we get new bodies. So the point, the first point is, do we, here's the test, do we have works if we claim to have faith? If you claim to have faith, but you're not doing anything as a result of that faith, then it's not genuine faith. Because genuine faith, when God changes your heart, desires and actions come from the heart. It comes from the internal part of our being. And if there's no actions that show as a result of your faith, well, then you don't have genuine faith. That's true. And the second point is, why are you doing those things? Right? That's the that's a more refined point and it harkens back to the whole thing of false converts somebody who's a false teacher the the one who christ never knew they're doing these things and these mighty works so they can get power and ego you can get an ego trip influence riches whatever that's why they're doing those works they're not doing it because they genuinely love god or they see a genuine reason and desire to do it they're not helping the poor because they want to help the poor they're using the poor and somehow, you know, marketing themselves through it. So ultimately, do you have works if you profess to have faith? And if you have genuine faith, you will have works. Doesn't mean you're measuring yourself by your works. Doesn't mean that God is measuring you by your works. It just means that your works are proof, genuine works are proof of genuine faith. That's what he's saying. Because the people who were being addressed in this letter were claiming to be Christians or have faith, but they were they were very partial to the rich, which is one of the things that Christ spoke on constantly to, to not be partial, to, to be, to help the poor, if anything, to be, not be partial to the poor, but, you know, to really strive to help the poor. And the point, second point is, why are you doing those works? Which is not really so much talked about in this passage, but it is a point too. Why are you doing the works that you're professing to do? Is it because you have to or because you want to? Is it because yourself or because of God? That's really what this is about. So faith without works is dead does not mean that you need to do something to be saved. It's just a way for us as elect to test ourselves, to refine ourselves constantly, to remind ourselves. It's a way for our consciences to be afflicted when we do something that's out of alignment with our professed faith. That's what it's all about. It's not all about working to work for your salvation. Okay, Luke 13, 
verse 24. Another good favorite, very popular. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not, not be able. I mean, again, this is, it seems like, gosh, you, you got to strive. It's up to you. You got to run this race. It's all on you. It's all on your free will. But again, take it in context of Philippians 2.12. Take it in context of James 2.17, which we just talked about both of these. It's not what you think that it's saying. First off, how many people are going to be saved in the world? Not that many, not in history. A very small percentage. There'll be a lot of people in the end, but compared to everybody that's been born, I don't think so. It's going to be a very small percentage. How many are going to be false converts that Christ never knew? How many are going to try to work for their salvation or be lost in the new age or pagan religions? A lot, man. And so, yeah, strive for the narrow door because the the road that leads to destruction is wide, right? The gate that leads to destruction. Many are going to be lost. The elect who will make it, they're very few. So it's it's an encouragement. This is an encouragement. It's not saying, I hope you make the right choice. It's an encouragement to have assurance of salvation. Like, strive for it, man. Remember, Christ's example of humility, therefore, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God is working through you for his good pleasure. <laughs> so yes, we have a participatory responsibility, but it's framed by a predestined work of God. That's very important to understand. So when Christ says that, you know, we have to strive for the narrow door, again, don't read libertarian humanistic philosophy into that. He is he's encouraging the elect to strive. Go. Many people have been predestined to not be saved. If you understand my words right now, if you understand that the cross is not foolishness, then strive. Many will seek to enter, but will not be able. You are the chosen few. Strive. Go for it. I want you to know how special your position is that you've been given to me. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. Now, the second point is something that we look in Matthew 23, 27, where he addresses the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Compare this also to, now, the verse in question we're talking about is Luke 13, uh, verse 24. But in earlier in Luke 13, so keep all this in mind, the, the Pharisees of whitewashed tombs, the parable of the barren fig tree in Luke 13, a couple verses earlier in verse 6. And what does Jesus also do in Matthew, Mark? He curses the fig tree. He casts out the money changers. All this is happening around the same time. What does the fig tree represent? Israel. Why does he curse the fig tree? Because the fig tree had no fruit. It had leaves, but it had no fruit. What is all this about? <laughs> The fig tree having no no fruit, but it had leaves. Generally speaking, when fig trees had leaves, they also had the first fruit. But this particular tree that Christ predestined to curse so that he'd make a precedent, it was showing all the outward signs of fertility, of, of having fruit, but it had no fruit. This happened right before he went into the temple and he cleared the money changers out. As well as saying strive for the narrow door. You know, all these things in the whitewashed tombs, all these things relate to the same idea. 
Are you true or are you false? Do you really have a relationship with God or not? Test yourself. There are many people who are pretending to have works like the whitewashed tombs of the Pharisees. There are many people who pretend to have righteousness through their works. There are many people who have outward signs, but they aren't actually bearing fruit, right? They, they claim something, but they're really not saved. They're trying to do mighty works, but they're not saved. God, Christ never knew them. So what does that mean? Is that something that, that we should be afraid of? Should we, we live in terror that, my gosh, I, I'm going to show up to the final judgment and Christ is going to say, I never knew you. No, first off, if you are feeling that way, then that's a good sign that God is already working in your life. Because the people who are truly reprobate, remember, some reprobate are also false converts. Those people could hardly care. They don't, they don't think about those kind of things. Like, oh gosh, what, what is Jesus going to think of me? They don't have those kind of thoughts. That's the point. Now, this is to, to help you test yourself and to keep you motivated to have assurance of salvation, to really go for the gift that you've been given. Don't be like those false converts. You won't be. Don't worry, because God is working through you. But don't be like those false converts. See how that works? There's two perspectives. There's there's the guaranteed perspective of the predestined view. And then there's there's sort of this urging and this nudging and this pushing in the present view to, to engage with the situation. That's what this is talking about. That's what it means when Christ says, strive for the narrow door. Don't take this along with these other verses and construct a whole works-based religion out of it. That's, that's taking things way out of context, as I hopefully believe that you have seen so far. But again, point three is this. Participation and predestination work hand in hand. They're not mutually exclusive. The Bible tells us to pray without seeking, or pray without ceasing. Seek his presence continually. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin. That's Romans 14, verse 23. These are absolute standards. Have you ever prayed without ceasing? I haven't. You know, that's that's a future reality. Have you ever, you know, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Everything you've done is glorifying God? No, absolutely not. We try, but, you know, we, sh- we certainly fall short. These are not... Things that saying, oh, you got to do this or else you'll be saved. No, these are standards that are being set for the elect as a way for us to continually work towards those standards. God has perfect standards. Doesn't mean that you're saved by your works. It doesn't mean that, you know, God will punish you for, you know, not working hard enough because God is working through you, first off. But it's a standard that allows us to be pulled towards that final destination. What's the final destination? To be conformed to the image of Christ. To be able to pray without ceasing, to be able to do everything that we do from faith and to glorify God. That's a long ways off. That's why we have eternity, right? So all of this talk about striving and doing and praying and working your salvation without fear and trembling, all these things are about participating in the gift we've been given. It's not about hanging this threat over your head that you might lose your salvation and that you, you it's up to you for some reason to work it out. Remember, the Hebrews who wrote the Bible believed it was a great sin to, t- to take salvation into your own hands. So why would that change with the New Testament? Absolutely not. Let's keep going. 1 Thessalonians 4, 
verses 1 through 2. A life pleasing to God. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Again, it's one of those things where is this saying, you have to please God, you have to work to please God, or is it an encouragement? The walk is the walk with Christ. It's the gospel. You know, later in this this whole passage, it's talking about sanctification. Who's doing the sanctifying? The Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. This is talking about after salvation. It's not talking about before salvation or for salvation. Hebrews 11, verse 6, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So faith is what pleases God. We know that from the centurion, Matthew 8, 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. He marveled at the centurion's faith. That's something. The Canaanite woman, it's in Matthew, later in Matthew 15, verses 27 through 28. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So, you know, Jesus was pleased by the faith. God is pleased by faith. Now look at when Thomas, after the resurrection, saw him. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you, this is John 20, verse 29. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So, one more verse. 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Your work of faith and labor of love. Who is doing the work of faith? Hmm. Let's see, verse 4. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. There it is. Just got to keep reading. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Who's doing the work? The Holy Spirit is bringing the gospel. God has chosen them. The Holy Spirit's doing the work. That's consistent with the rest of Scripture. You know that you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So, the faith that's happening, first off, when we go back to this verse, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1, to please God, a life pleasing to God, and do it more and more. How do we please God? Hebrews 11 is without faith is impossible to please him. Faith is what pleases God. That's pretty clear from the centurion, from the Canaanite woman, from his interchange with John or with uh, Thomas. It's very clear that faith is what pleases God. And even in, earlier in Thessalonians, when Paul talks about the work of faith that they did, their faith is growing. But who is responsible for the faith? God's chosen them. The Holy Spirit is sanctifying them, bringing the gospel, bringing the joy. Remember, nobody can say Jesus is Lord unless in the Holy Spirit. Remember the Father revealing the Christ to Peter. Who's doing the work? It is God that's doing the work. 
So this is the duality, to live a life pleasing to God, to grow in the faith is what's going to please God. But growing in the faith is a dance between you doing certain things, right? Participating in, in prayer and fellowship and all these giving to the poor, all these things that come into your heart. But where are they coming from? From the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is giving a new heart and he's prompting you. Are you choosing to listen to those prompts? And it's a dance. Now, you're not going to fail. You're not going to lose your salvation. But again, this is the mystery. This is the mystery of the dance between predestination, election, eternal security, and our own participation in this life. That's what this is talking about. It's not talking about choosing your way to success. It's just really not. One, 1 Corinthians, I only say one, you know, to me it's easier to say one, but 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. What's Paul talking about here? Is he talking about losing his salvation? Well, of course not. Again, this is the same apostle that wrote Romans and predestination, all those, you know, beautiful verses on foreknowledge and calling and drawing. So this is not what this is saying. He's talking about being disqualified in the sense of rewards, of the Bema judgment at the end of the age. Now, we have a couple of examples of people who were disqualified. Moses was disqualified from seeing the promised land. Did God ordain that? Yeah, he ordained Moses to be disqualified because the action that Moses did set a precedent where God could then show his mercy and justice and for future generations to understand and discuss that. So Moses was used as a living example, and he was disqualified. God is just. He has to, if God is going to ordain for Moses to strike the rock and disobey him so that he could show a point, God also has to ordain making that right through justice. So God disqualified him from the promised land, from seeing the promised land. Okay, and he still, at the end, he still let him see from a distance, so he's still merciful. So that's, again, showing God's mercy. None of that would have been revealed if God didn't ordain Moses to disobey him. So again, God is using people to show and to reveal his character. It's all about God. Saul was disqualified from being king. 1 Samuel 15, verse 28. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you, this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. <laughs> Ouch. So was Saul saved? Yes, he was. And I'm going to make a case for that in this episode. But Saul was disqualified from being king. Does that mean that Saul was not saved? No, he didn't lose his salvation. He was just disqualified from certain. There's the professional side, right? And there's like the personal side. We're all saved. The elect are saved. But there are things and responsibilities that we have that are taken away, right? And that's, again, this is where we talked about this in a previous episode. How can we be held responsible, quote unquote, if God is predestining things? How can we hold responsible? Well, it all depends on how you view the term being held responsible. If you view that as blame, which is, only a response from our ego and our free will libertarian perspective. Like God is blaming me and I have this sovereign will and he has this sovereign will and he's kind of forcing me to do things. Now he's making me, you know, accountable to those things. And it's just this battle between you and God. That's not the correct way to see it. 
We are vessels. God can use us for whatever he wants to show his glory and his perfection. It is not up to us to question how we are being used. And that's very humbling. But we have to trust that God's character is perfect and he's not going to misuse us. Let's put it that way. So when God is predestining your mistakes, predestining certain trials for you, and then holding you responsible for that, he's not saying, I'm blaming you because you made the choice. Well, of course not. He predestined for you to make those mistakes. He's holding you responsible in the sense that he's teaching you and moving you through various mistakes and wins and failures and successes so that you can learn about him, you can learn to be more like Christ, and you can come closer and closer to union with him. That's what it's all about. It's not about being at fault. There's no fault for the elect. We're not condemned. He's disciplining those who he loves. Remember, he rebukes those who he loves. That's throughout scripture. Like a, like a father who loves his son. That's that's what the scripture says. Like a father who loves his dear son. And so for for God to hold you responsible, just like he held Moses responsible. Think about that for a second. How many times is like Uzzah in the ark? Uzzah touched the ark and boom, evaporated. <laughs> Moses disobeyed God and he took credit for it. And God rebuked him, but he still let him see the promised land from far away. He could have killed Moses. He could have killed Moses. But Moses was elect, so there's no condemnation. There's rebuke, but the rebuke was to teach him so that he would learn something. And he was, and the rebuke was also to teach future generations and the elect and to show God's mercy and, and qualities of justice. So all these things have to do with when, when Paul says will not be disqualified. Remember this also earlier in the, in the book in first Corinthians three, verse 15, if anyone, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss though. He himself will be saved but only as through fire. So this is, again, about the Bema judgment. You may lose certain things. You may lose certain things that you have built, but the builder is not lost. We have eternal security, right? We're saved. But you may lose certain things, and that is, you have to trust that that's going to be for your betterment for eternity. God is going to reward everything that we've done in this life to fulfill the predestined life we've been given before eternity. And we'll probably be disqualified from certain rewards, and those will be teaching points for us to, to learn more about God's sense of justice and mercy and, again, prime us for eternity. It's all part of the plan. So, again, this is just about striving for that narrow door. You've been saved, but go for it so you don't get disqualified. That's not saying you're going to lose your salvation. It's just kind of, again, nudging you in the right direction so that you can maximize your salvation, your experience here on earth. Now, again, is God predestined that? Absolutely. Is God in control? Absolutely. Do we experience choices? Yes, we do. Do we go moment by moment through life? Yes, we do. So where's the line? There is no line. I don't know. But drawing a line is going to lead you to some serious problems. Just accept that everything is taken care of by God, that he's predestined things to be the best possible ending there is for everybody. He's also predestined bad things to happen and trials for a very specific purpose. And we have to trust his judgment. And we still live out moment by moment. 
Remember, Christ's life was predestined, every aspect of it. We're being conformed to that life. So, you know, does that does that mean we have free will? Absolutely not. We have a will, we have desires, but we don't have free will. Certainly not if we're being conformed to the image of Christ. But we are encouraged to participate. And that is, again, the mystery, the beautiful mystery. And thank God we are. And we're not living in this. Thank God that we don't know the future. Let's put it that way. That's what makes all of this work. We don't know the future. So regardless of the predestined things that have been predestined for us, we will still experience them as surprises. And God is shaping our consciousness and our awareness through those different surprises, which for him, they're not surprises. So he has insider information, we don't. And we are just encouraged to participate. Now, the last one in this topic of work, work, work (laughs) is 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. And again, it's, it's one of those things that's very commonly misinterpreted. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Uh-oh. You might fail to meet the test. Is that what this is about? That you might show up to the final judgment and, oops, I never knew you. That's not what this is about. Earlier in the chapter, let's look at verse 3. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. What's going on here? They were seeking proof that Paul was indeed having authority from Christ. Right? They're, they're challenging Paul's authority, the Corinthians. That's what the context of this whole passage is. So what is Paul responding to them very politely but very succinctly? He's saying, listen, test yourselves. If Christ is in you, you're going to know that I'm speaking the truth because Christ is in me. That's basically what he's saying. If you're elect, you're not going to, you'll see the truth. Let's put it that way. But if you fail to meet the test, as in if you're reprobate, he's challenging them. If you're a false convert, then you're going to, you're not going to see, you're going to fail to meet the test. It's not, he's not talking about Losing your salvation, he's not talking about testing yourself. You might fail the test. You lost what you once had. Our faith is not measured by the degree of faith. Our faith is measured by the object, right? It's like speed versus direction. Speed is not as important as direction. If you're going in the wrong way, you could be going super fast, and that's even worse. It's going in the right direction that's important. So our faith is measured by direction, right? Christ is our direction. It's not about the degree of faith. And so the Corinthians were challenging Paul, and Paul is just responding. Test yourself. If you have true faith, then you'll know that that I am faithful, that Christ is in me, that I'm genuine. Don't challenge me. Challenge yourselves. So remember Luke 17, verse 6, faith the size of a mustard seed. And if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Faith the size of a mustard seed. So it's the, it's the direction of the faith. And again, who's responsible for that faith? God is responsible. Because we can't be responsible. But again, there are a lot of false converts. There are a lot of people who pretend to, and there were at that time too, 
plenty. I mean, if you study the history of the early church, there's so much in the first couple centuries before Constantine, even afterwards. I mean, it's just even till today, right? Throughout the church's history, the enemy has tried to divide and, and attack and all kinds of things. But they were false converts. They were false prophets, false teachers, all the time. And so this is just a reflection of that. If you're questioning me being genuine, even though I've proved to you to be genuine, then I'm going to throw the ball back in your court. And I'm going to say, test yourselves to see if your faith is genuine and because you will know if I'm genuine. That's what Paul is saying. I'm saying if you're elect, you're going to know that I'm elect. If you're not elect, you're not going to see clearly and you're going to keep hating me just like the Pharisees hated Christ. They weren't elect. So that's what that's about. Now, the next category is Israelites on the fence or legalists. And this is, a lot of these come from Hebrews. The first one's Hebrews 6, verse 4 through 9. And again, we'll have to talk about the context for this because it's so important. But Hebrews 6, verse 4 says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. This is a, a pretty pretty heavy words here. And the question is, is this talking about, okay, if, you, if you've fallen away from the faith, it's basically impossible to bring them back to repentance. Is that what that means? Is, is that, well, first and foremost, that means that anybody who's fallen away from the faith, they can't, here, here's where the free will thing just falls apart. If this means what it's supposed to mean in terms of free will. Because if you can lose your salvation, what this is saying is that you can't free will your way back into repentance. So how does that work, I wonder? If, if we're totally depraved, but somehow we have the ability to have faith and come to Christ the first time, and then we lose our salvation, we kind of, you know, stop having faith, meaning we return back to where we were. We didn't have faith in the beginning. Why can it then, why is it impossible for us to have faith again, to free will our way back into it? See, it doesn't make any sense. Because the Bible is very clear that God repent, God allows repentance, and he takes joy in that. There's no sin that isn't forgiven other than the unforgivable sin, but we talked about that. We talked about how that's not something you can commit and it has to do with the reprobate. So what is this verse talking about? Well, it's not talking about losing your salvation and falling away and then you you just can't repent after that. That's it. You burned your chances. (laughs) When When he uses the words enlightened, tasted the goodness, shared in the holy gifts, he's not talking about salvation. What is the context of Hebrews? The Hebrews letters, letter is to Hebrews. It's to people who are still on the fence about Christ because they're hanging on to the sacrificial system. They don't get it. They don't get the whole saved by grace thing. Like a lot of people don't get it. Look at the world. Most of the world is wanting to be saved by its own works. So there's nothing new here. You know, compared to the Pharisees, again, people who knew all the law and the Torah and everything, but they still denied Jesus. They were very educated. They had tasted the holy gifts. They tasted the goodness of the Lord. They, they've been enlightened with the scriptures. They've studied the scriptures. 
and yet they rejected Jesus. They te- they bore false witness against him. That's that whole chapter where he's talking about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because they bore false witness. They're lying to people about Jesus in his face. That's like capital crime. So, But the thing is, an elect would never do that. It would be impossible to do that. The, the Pharisees were not elect. They were reprobate. And all the reprobate commit this sin because they were destined to blaspheme the Spirit and to resist, to show God's wrath and justice to the elect, who he's not going to show that to. He's not going to show wrath to the elect because they're not condemned. This is talking about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's not talking about, you know, losing your salvation. It's, it's warning the Hebrews to not be like the Pharisees. Do not cling to this sacrificial system. Do not, you know, try to, to be self-righteous because you're going to not be saved. That's the whole point. And so it's calling to those people. Now, some of those Hebrews, are they all elect? No, some of them are elect. Some of them aren't. That's the whole point. It's He's speaking to whoever's going to respond. He's proclaiming the truth. Again, let's say it is about, you know, this refers to Christians. It's not. What does that mean? This means that you can't repent and be saved again. <laughs> Once you fall away from the faith, that's it. But the Bible's clear that you can repent, that God is merciful. And again, remember the context. It's not God doing, it's not you doing the work, it's God doing the work. So this is not about you're saved and then you fall away from the faith and that's it. You can't you can't repent again. Because that doesn't make sense either with free will or with predestination with, with God predestining things. He would not predestine someone to be elect and then predestine them to sort of lose a little faith and then come back. Or lose a little faith, but then they can't come back. He wouldn't predestine that. He wouldn't predestine somebody to be saved, truly saved, and then to fall away from the faith. That's that's not the God of the Bible. And even with free will, it makes no sense if you could lose your salvation, but then you can't re-enter salvation through free will again. Why not? That doesn't make sense. So this is not talking about any of that stuff. It's not talking about salvation. It is warning against a very specific kind of behavior that was common with the Jews, particularly the Pharisees, which was this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is reprobation. The people who were supposed to be the chosen enlightened ones were the very ones who rejected Jesus and the whole offer of grace. So that's what this is about. And you have to take the next verse, which is Hebrews 10.26, another very popular one, in context. Okay, this is again in the context of the Hebrews. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. If we go on sinning deliberately, well, first off, let's look at the title of this chapter. This is The Full Assurance of Faith. Okay, so this the, the intent of this section is the full assurance of faith. So if you just take this verse, Hebrews 10, 26, and you say, well, see, it's warning to not sin deliberately. You better not sin deliberately, otherwise you might lose your salvation. That's not what this is talking about at all. Zero. First off, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What is this talking about? It's talking about the Jews expecting to be saved by their sacrifices, right? Right? What is what is the sin 
that's spoken of here. This is very important. We're going to get to it. Because deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, what's the truth? The gospel. And yet if you go on sinning deliberately, well, first off, every sin that we make is willful. Every sin that we make is deliberate. I mean, sometimes you might sin by accident. But, you know, it's it's not like the sins that happen happen to you while you're sleeping, right? You participate in those sins. So it's not talking about just everyday sins. And, and first off, how do you know if you've lost your salvation? At what point, what measurement can you measure that you've lost your salvation? What sin have you committed? How many sins? Nobody can answer that. The context is the sin of unbelief. That's what the context is. This is the sin of unbelief because the, remember John 16, 8. Let's go to that first. And when he comes, this Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So the sin, what is that? Verse 9, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. That's the sin of unbelief. So in Hebrews 10.26, when he says, when we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, you receive the gospel, but you keep sinning deliberately, meaning you keep having an unbelieving heart, just like the Jews have had throughout history, even to the modern day. So don't be like that. That's what he's saying here. If we go on sinning deliberately, there is no longer remaining a sacrifice for sins. Like, there, that's it. Jesus' sacrifice is the new covenant. There's no other way that you can be saved. If you choose to sin deliberately, meaning to believe, to not believe, I should say, there's nothing left for you. All you have is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. The world is going to be judged. You've been given a way out. If you choose to, to not believe in it, even after you've been given the truth, you know, that's it. Like, it's on you in that sense. I mean, it's not on you, like, it's your free will, but you will be condemned, right? And the elect will not be condemned. The elect will read this, like the Hebrews who were elect in this audience, their conscience convicted them and they converted. The Hebrews who read this and said, no, I think the Pharisees were right. They're reprobate, right? That's the way this thing divides the two. Now compare this to Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. God doesn't care about bloods of bulls and goats. He cares about repentance and faith, right? Hebrews 8, 6, again, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Who's this to? The Hebrews. What's it about? The, the new covenant, the better covenant. Stop trying to sacrifice stuff. Stop trying to rely on your own works. He's the high priest. He's the mediator. Hebrews is constantly about comparing the Old Testament to Christ and, and showing how that is all fulfilled in Christ to, to prove to the Hebrews, like, listen, you can, you can believe this is true. That's what this is all about. And same thing with Hebrews 3, Verse 12, which is earlier, it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Is this talking about Christians today where you can lose your salvation because of unbelief? 
and deconstruct your faith so you lost your salvation. No, it's not at all what it's talking about. This is addressed to the Hebrews who are on the fence and trying to be legalist. What are they unbelieving of? It's the sin of unbelief in Christ. That's the specific sin. Not accepting the Messiah when you're the chosen people who have been studying the Torah for generations. You're supposed to know and recognize the Messiah, and yet you're refusing to accept the Messiah. You have an unbelieving heart. That's what this is all about. It's not about people who are false converts, people who fall away, because they may come back too. You don't know. We don't know who is elect. But again, this is not about losing your salvation. It's it's talking directly to Hebrews who are on the fence and who are trying to be legalists about working out their salvation with, with sacrifices. They're not sure, even though they've been given plenty of information. So it's not about losing your salvation at all. Now again, Galatians 5.4, this is another example that kind of relates to these. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. Ping the dramatic music. But is this really saying, he's addressing people and telling them, you have fallen away from grace. That's it. You've lost your salvation. I don't think so. Not at all. And hopefully you don't think so either by, by this point in the conversation. If you look at earlier in the chapter, it says, Christ has set us free. That's the title of this section. So all of this is about Christ setting us free. If you try to add works to your salvation, you're falling away from grace, meaning you're not pointing your eyes and mind and heart towards the grace of God. You're falling away from grace because the, the Galatians were trying to add works like circumcision to their salvation. You know, there was a big debate about being circumcised or not, and they're trying to add works to justification. They don't get it. A lot of people have a hard time getting the saved by grace thing where God is doing the work. That's why it's such a stumbling block. And that's why even today, there's so much debate over this, which is unneeded. But this is what Armenianism is. It really is, if you think about it. Because it's not as, you know, Armenianism doesn't add, you have to do this to be saved. It's a lot more toned down. But it's really the same thing. Because it's saying you have to believe to be saved. It's up to you to believe. And if you it's up to you to believe, then you it's up to you to maintain that belief. Because you can lose that belief and then you know you might lose your salvation. It makes salvation contingent on your faith. Now, the debate is is faith a work? Is it not a work? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's a work or not, because ultimately you are co-doing something with God. It's you plus God equals salvation. God provides grace. I access it through faith. Now we have salvation. That's not how it works. As long as you and God are doing something to to get the outcome, then God has to share his glory with you. It doesn't matter if it's half a percent of glory. He's not sharing any of it with anybody, and rightly so. So it doesn't matter that faith is a work. You're, you're doing something. That's the same thing that's reflected here. Galatians, in Galatians 5, 4, you're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. They're trying to be justified by the law, but they've fallen away from grace by doing that. They're missing the point. That's what he's saying. And that's, again, that point is something that Armenians should consider as well. They're missing the point. 
you're it's not as extreme, obviously, it's not as extreme. They're not out front saying works-based salvation, but that's what it reduces to. Never mind all the other problems that come with free will uh, that we talked about. But, you know, Paul, first off, wrote Romans. And in Romans, you have, like, for example, Romans 3, verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So he's very clear that, you know, the law is not what we get justified through. 11, verse 6, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Whoops. If you're doing something, I have my cup over there. If you're doing something, that's a work. You can We can do biblical gymnastics and philosophical gymnastics on whether faith is a work or not. But if you're doing work, if you're doing faith, then that's a work. Because guess what? If you believe up to you, then what you're saying is that it's up to you to maintain that belief. That is work that you have to do, that you bring into your belief system. What work is it? Nobody can specify. When do you lose your salvation? Nobody knows. What amount of work do you have to do to maintain your salvation? Who knows? But you can lose your salvation, apparently. Well, you can't. It's not biblical. It doesn't make any sense. So in Galatians, Paul is not talking about losing your salvation. He's talking He's addressing them, telling them you're missing the mark if you're trying to work for your salvation. And the same way I, I say to anybody who believes in free will as a factor in salvation, you're missing the mark. You're missing the full glory of God and you're missing the full extent of God's plan in revealing this whole predestined, glorified gospel to us. You're missing the mark if you think you first off, if you think you can choose to have faith, you're missing the mark. You're missing the great work of God in your life to transform your heart. If you think you can lose your salvation, you're missing the mark and not seeing the work of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to maintain that salvation. You're not appreciating all of that. And that's why Armenians are saved by <laughs> a happy coincidence, I think R.C. Sproul says, but it's true, but if Armenians, if the world actually worked the way the Armenians believed it worked, with free will, nobody would be saved. It would be absolutely horrible, because if you could lose your salvation, you would. Okay, well, the next section is being cut off or blotted out, and there's several verses here where it seems to suggest that, again, you can lose your salvation and and be cut off in some way. So let's just jump into it. So Romans 11, verse 21 for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. There it is. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. They're pretty harsh words, right? I mean, these seem like if you don't continue in God's kindness, you're going to be cut off. So now what is this talking about? Well, first off, this is Romans and it's Romans 11. This comes after Romans 8, Romans 9, which is the entire book of Romans is very much about predestination, the elect, foreknowledge. So that's not compatible with the initial reading of this as some sort of like, you know, he's shaking his finger and saying, you better do the right thing with your free will. Those two aren't compatible. So there has to be some different meaning. And the context is that he's talking about God's relationship to the Gentiles in Israel and how God cut off certain nations, right? When Israel was 
the chosen nation, God cut off a lot of nations because he had chosen them and he, he destroyed the rest of them. And today, like none of those nations are around anymore. But the Jews are, Israel still is. Now, he's saying, consider how kind God has been to you. Don't let God set you aside like he set those other nations aside. You have an opportunity with the gospel. He, again, it's it's like a blessing and a curse, but it's a warning and trying to evoke an action from the elect. We don't know who the elect are. The Israelites were chosen. They were the chosen people, quote unquote, like the Pharisees. But remember the marriage feast, the parable of the marriage feast. Matthew twenty two fourteen. For many are called, but few are chosen. This was this whole parable was in the context of these conversations he had with the Pharisees where he's sort of giving them a, a slap across the nose, this this underhanded slap or kind of, you know, he because other people are there too. And so he Jesus is speaking to everybody. And he's obviously rebuking those people like the Pharisees who thought they were chosen and they were very high and mighty about it. But many are called if you were chosen. So Paul, in the same way, was warning about false converts. He's not saying, work to maintain your faith, otherwise God is going to disown you. Like, why Why would he say that? I mean, look at, look at the verses before that. This is in Romans 11, 1 through 7. The remnant of Israel. This is before the verse we just read about being cut off. I asked then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. Election. Do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. That's election, predestination. Those people are going to be the ones to respond. Paul is saying, I hope, whoever's reading this, that you're one of them. But if, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. We read this earlier. But what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. So, you know, this is, Romans is just full of predestination and election. And what is he saying here? Well, he's making a distinction between the chosen nation and the remnant, the actual elect. There's going to be elect. Initially, it was just some elect in Israel, a small percentage of the actual chosen nation. It was chosen to bring about the Messiah, not chosen in the sense that everybody saved from Israel. That's definitely not the case. But you have the remnant that was elect, but you also have elect in other nations too, in the Gentiles that are coming in and being grafted in. That's what he's talking about. They're being grafted in. And so don't be left out is the point of this whole thing. God is kind to the elect. If you happen to be elect and you respond to this, he's kind. But if you prove to be reprobate, if you're a, if you're a false convert, right? If you continue in his kindness, that means, first off, who's going to ensure that you continue in his kindness? The Holy Spirit. God is going to ensure that. But if you don't continue in his kindness, like all those reprobate people that didn't continue in his kindness, 
then yeah, you will be cut off. But he's first talking about nations, first and foremost. But this is not talking about losing your salvation is the point. It's it's motivating and pushing people to see a particular thing, which is that God is kind to his elect, that he's always chosen to elect people. Most of Romans is talking about election and that now there's a new covenant. Israel, there is a remnant and chosen by grace. Same thing now. People are being grafted in. All these people are chosen by grace. There is an elect. Are you part of them or not? Let's go to the next one. John 15. And this is, um, you know, I am the true vine. And he's talking about basically the, the vines that don't produce fruit are going to be thrown into the fire. And so <laughs> this is another one where people say, see, you can be cut off. If you don't produce fruit, you're going to be, you know, like, uh, for example, uh, verse four, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. And he continues in verse five. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Does that teach that if it's up to you to abide in Christ? Does that teach that if you don't use your free will to abide in Christ, you'll be thrown out like a branch and put in the fire? First off, what does that even mean? I mean, how do we know if we're abiding in Christ or not? How, at what point does, does it change over and do I lose my salvation? See how that works? There's no, it's like everybody uses this verse to teach that you can lose your salvation and it's up to you. Ignoring all the context that we've discussed in this entire conversation about how the Hebrews didn't believe in libertarian free will, how God is doing the work, how it was a sin to work your own salvation which this is it. I mean, if you're abiding in Christ, that's you're saving yourself. You're you're basically ensuring that you're saved. Because if Christ is making you abide in him, that's different. That's not on you, right? So, so what is this talking about? Well, again, it's talking about the elect and the reprobate. Let's look at, let's look at a couple others in John. John 6, again, everything has to be put in context. John 6, verse 37 all that the Father gives me will come to me. All the elect are going to come to Christ. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. But wait a minute, didn't he talk about branches? And Well, yeah, because those branches that are being thrown away, they're not elect. They're not the people that Christ received from the Father. He wouldn't throw those people out. First off, he would make sure that they would not fail. That's to his glory and to the Father's glory. Verse 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. John 10, verse 28 through 29. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one who no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So, if that's in John, but then we go back to the true vine, and he's talking about, you know, if anyone doesn't abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. Is that saying, again, this is, hopefully I've been able to sharpen your reading skills. Is that saying, if you don't use your free will, you're going to get thrown out like a branch? 
And if you don't use your free will and abide in me, you're going to get thrown out. Or is it saying a matter of fact statement of the covenant? Those who abide in me will bear much fruit. Just a reminder to the elect that in me you have life and you have fruit. And those who do not abide in me, the false converts, the reprobate, those people will get thrown out in, in like branches into the fire, alluding to the final judgment. Is that what it's saying? I think so. I think it's much more plausible and reasonable considering everything we've read. And if you're honest with scripture and you see all these things like predestined things and, and he's not going to lose anybody he's been given and the sheep know his voice and the father's drawing and, you know, all these different things. And look at the end of this whole interchange. Verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Now, let me ask you a million dollar question here. If if Christ said that these things I've spoken to you, that my joy is in you and that your joy may be full. Is it very joyful to be warned that you can lose your salvation at any moment in time? He didn't even provide, if that's the case, if, if what Christ is saying through those verses is that, you know, you can lose your salvation, wouldn't that be like something he, for us to be joyful, <laughs> wouldn't that be something that we should know exactly how that would happen? rather than this generalized abide in me, right? But that's not what it's saying. It's generalized because it's talking about the elect and the reprobate. See how this works? It works completely perfectly in a predestined election view. Those who God never chose to give to the Son, the Father to the Son, those people are reprobate. They're passed over in the sense that they're not, they're not saved. Those people will get thrown into the fire. That's a matter-of-fact statement. Those people who God the Father gave to the Son, that the Son will keep, never lose, etc., etc., those people will bear much fruit. It's just He's just matter-of-fact proclaiming the truth. He's not warning people because, again, the truth, what does the truth give you? It gives you eternal security so that your joy may be complete or full. That's how you're joyful, by having eternal security and knowing that, wow, I'm waking up to this reality of being in Christ. That's something to be joyful about. That's something to give you strength for persecution. Not, hey, you got this wonderful thing, salvation, but you know what? You could lose it at any point in time. There you go. I've told you that so you could be joyful. It's like, what? That doesn't work at all. You got to be honest. So let's go one more here. Uh, It's actually two more quick one after this, but it's Exodus 32, 33. And this one's a good one too. It's, gosh, it's just so scary. You read these things, you're like, man, these things are, sounds pretty scary at first, but again, you got to read the context. You have to read very in, intentionally. Let's put it that way. Exodus 32, verse 33. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. That's pretty scary. Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Is he talking about the book of life, like the book from the before the foundation of the world, and you can lose your predestined status? Is that what this is talking about? Let's look at Psalm 69, verse 28. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. 
let them not be enrolled among the righteous. So, first question is, did Moses sin? Yes, he sinned. Did the apostles sin? Yes. Everybody sinned. So does that mean by the literal interpretation of this, Exodus 32, 33, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. By that virtue, everybody would be blotted out. Okay, so it's not that's not what this is talking about. It's not talking about the book of life that is a very specific thing that's found in Revelation and this understanding that it's the book of life of the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. It's not talking about that book. It's talking about the book of life as in people who are alive. It's it's an idiom. It's an idiom that's talking about people who are living. If you were blotted out of the book of life, it was just a way of saying you got killed, you got destroyed. It's not talking about the elect. It's not talking about salvation. It was an idiom about genealogies, censuses. People took genealogies all the time. Remember, they wrote vast genealogies to keep track of who birthed who. That's That was called the book of life, a book of life. So when you're blotted out of that, it means you're you're done, you're destroyed. It's not talking about the elect or salvation or anything else. Remember, the Old Testament, they didn't have Jesus Christ. Not yet, in the sense. I mean, they didn't have the, the cross, let's put it that way. They only had the first covenant. So if you disobeyed, willingly knowing the penalty, especially with supernatural presence of God there, those people were never elect. The people who rebelled against God in the desert, who saw his supernatural you know, effects, and still rebelled, they were reprobate. That was blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Just like the Pharisees, they knew everything. They saw Christ doing supernatural things. They knew who he was, and yet they blasphemed him. They rejected him. That's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's talking about those kinds of people, the reprobate. Now look in Revelations twenty-two nineteen. There's something important there. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which is described in this book. If you're elect, you're truly saved, would you want to take away the words from the book of Revelation? Would you want to modify scripture? Absolutely not. You might do it on accident, but I don't know how you would commit that sin, but you would never do it intentionally. So this is not a warning for people Again, it's like blotting them out of the book of life. Like in Revelations 3, 5, same thing. That's another verse that's kind of similar. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before the, my father, before his angels. It's, it's not talking about, like, you can lose your salvation, so you better not be blotted out of the book of life. No, if you're, again, if you're elect... If you are elect, you would never modify the book of Revelation. The Holy Spirit would never lead you to do that. Okay, that, that's a, a big sin, right? And so it's not a warning to the elect. It's a warning to the reprobate so that there's legal precedent to punish them. <laughs> if you modify this book, this is it's like trespassing sign. You go into somebody's yard and in, in a state where they have the right to shoot you, they could shoot you. <laughs> Why? Because there's a legal warning on the front yard. If you trespass, they could shoot you if they wanted to legally. Same thing here. This is a legal warning. God is a very legal being. He does everything by the book of the law. So when you 
when it says, if you modify the words of this book, we're going to blot you out of the book of life or take away your share from the tree of life. Well, if you did that, you were reprobate and you never had a share to begin with. So yeah, your share was taken away and you proved it through your actions, right? And so the elect would never do that. So what is this about? It's about, first off, it's an idiom. The Exodus 32, 33, it's an idiom to describe being cut off or destroyed because of the, the censuses and genealogies that they would take. It's, it's a figure of speech. It's not referring to election or God's you know, main book where everybody he's written before time is going to be living and everybody who's condemned is there. That's not that book. That book doesn't change. You can't predestine that book and then God goes and changes the mind. And, you know what? Oof, too many sins. I'm going to erase your name from the book. Again, doesn't make any sense. At what point would you even measure that anyway? How many sins? Everybody's sinned, right? So this is, it's just nonsense. You, you have to, again, read carefully what these things say. And one more on this topic, which is being cut off, which is Proverbs one thirty-two. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Is this talking about using your free will and making the right choice wisely? No, it's proclaiming what God ordained versus warning of, you know, it's like, okay, so on one side you could read this as proclaiming what God ordained. On another side, it is reading this from the free will perspective and this verse, this proverb is warning you that there's this uncertain future and you need to, you know, choose the right thing to do. Otherwise, you're not going to be saved or you're going to fall away or you know, you're going to lose your salvation or you're going to get cut off. Whatever formula you want to use. It's not saying that. It's just proclaiming the truth. Throughout this conversation and this study, you've seen that there are two ways to read it. There's the libertarian humanist way that's very man-centered. And you read scripture and it gives you a very man-centered, like it's all on you type of thing. It has nothing to do with God. There's a God-centered way to read it. And that reveals the truth of what God's trying to say. He is proclaiming what's happening. And he's telling it as it is. For the simple are killed by the turning away. It's true. The simple are killed by the turning away. The simple being the reprobate. The complacency of fools destroys them. That's right. Fools get destroyed. Fools are reprobate. We can be foolish as elect, but we're not reprobate. Whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Is that saying choose so that you can do this? No, it's saying I have ordained that everybody who listens to me will dwell secure and be at ease. I've taken care of that. This is the law of the universe, that if you listen to me and you obey, you'll, you'll be at ease without dread of disaster. He's proclaiming how it is. He's not inviting you to use your free will and, and hope you make the right decision. See how those two are vastly different and vastly different ideas about God, the universe, creation, everything. It's all related. Okay, so we got one more category in this, and that's famous failures. And again, I hope it's been enlightening for you. I hope uh, you've taken notes. I hope it's given you some clarity. It's a lot of content, obviously, but ultimately, look, the scriptures are very clear. They're very consistent. And God is sovereign, completely sovereign. But we tend to read into Scripture things that were not believed by by the authors of Scripture, namely libertarian free will. And so one of those things that I wanted to highlight was famous famous failures, if I can get my words right, 
And three of those failures are Saul, Judas, and Lucifer. And I think there's, there's some fascinating stuff we can learn from that, and especially with King Saul. But we're going to start with King Saul. And th- the debate is, was King Saul ever saved? Right? Was he ever saved or not? I'm going to argue that he is saved, or he was saved, even though there's good, at least on the surface, seeming arguments that he no way he could be saved. So let's take a look at it. The beginning of Saul's journey starts around 1 Samuel 10.6. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Keep that in mind. That's very important. He turned him into another man. This is the Spirit of the Lord coming over Saul. And then later in verse 9, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him a new heart, another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. So he turned him into a new man and he gave him a new heart. This is very important. A couple verses later in verse 26, still chapter 10, Saul also went to his home at Gibeah and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. So Saul not only had a new heart, but he also had his entourage that was changed by God. They were born again in some sense. Well, obviously the cross wasn't there, but God had renewed their heart. Same idea. So keep all this in mind. Now let's let's jump jump ahead a little bit. First Samuel chapter twenty four, verse four. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Speaking of Saul, then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So David spares Saul. Because David thinks that Saul is anointed. He has a high respect for Saul, even though Saul is trying to kill him. Look in verse 9, same thing, chapter 1 Samuel 26, verse 9. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David knew that Saul was anointed by God and what that meant, what that carried with it when you were anointed and God had put his spirit on you. He's not going to bother with killing Saul. That's a huge sin. And you see, in the previous verse, in in 1 Samuel 24, verse 4, where the Lord said, Do to him as it shall seem good to you. Of course, God knew and he predestined that David would spare Saul. That's the whole point. That's the I mean, there's this all of this is related. But in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 14. David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Somebody basically uh, killed killed a man who helped to kill Saul, basically. I mean, Saul fell on his own sword, but I believe a man helped him. Then David called one of the young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. So this was pretty serious. This was very, very serious what happened. David lamented, 2 Samuel um, one, seventeen. David's lament for Saul and Jonathan. And David lamented with his lament, lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said it would be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, O glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. 
Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. So David lamented over all of this. David was afraid to kill Saul. David lamented. David avenged Saul's death and, and Jonathan's death. And David's blessing for burying Saul. This is in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 5. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. So he died with honor. He was buried with honor. 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 9. But David answered Rechab and Banah, his brother, the sons of Rimon, the Berethite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and the thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag. That was the previous verse we looked at, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his bed shall I now shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? This is for killing Saul's son. So, what are the conclusions from all this? Okay, let's kind of sum it up. Saul received a new heart. He became a new man. He was anointed. He was highly respected by David even after his death. So, all of that context we have to keep in mind. And the reason all that context was is because God did the work in his life. God gave him a new heart, gave him anointing, gave him respect from David, predestined that David would spare his life. All that stuff was from God. So now let's look at Saul's downward spiral. Well, first off, he offered sacrifices without priests. That's in 1 Samuel 13, verse 11, where Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and you did not come within the days appointed, and the Philistines had mustered at Mishmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. So he offered a burnt offering outside of the ordained way to do it. So he that was a big sin. He disobeyed God with the Amalekites. This is in 1 Samuel 15, verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen of the fattened calves and the lambs. So they're supposed to raid these people, the Amalekites, but he spared their resources and he spared their king. And all that was good and that and would not utterly destroy them as the God as the Lord commanded. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. And if you look forward in the next couple verses, verses ten through eleven, the word of the Lord came to Samuel right after that. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. So he didn't obey God when he told him to utterly destroy these people, right? And you'll see why. All these things kind of, there's a parallel tangent because he was very insecure. He cared about outward appearances. And that, that whole theme of caring about outward appearances was throughout Saul's life. Both how he was picked by the people because they cared for outward appearances, because he looked like a good king, and he himself was very insecure, which is all very interesting. It all ties together. But, you know, a couple other things, you know, he spent a lot of energy to kill, try and kill David. He ordered 85 priests and their families to be killed. There's verses for all these, but I'm just kind of going through them. He consulted a medium, (laughs) 
And he vowed, you know, he made worthless vows and vowed on, you know, you're not supposed to take the Lord's name in vain. He vowed on on God for a lot of different things that he wasn't supposed to. And at the end, he kills himself because he was losing to the Philistines. So he had a downward spiral. Most of, you know, First Samuel is about Saul's downward spiral. It's not about very many great things that Saul did. So he did a lot of horrible things. And we had the context from the beginning of all the things that God did in his life. The question is, was he saved? If you believe that Saul wasn't saved, then what you're doing is you're you're saying that his work is greater than God's work. But if you believe that Saul was saved, it's consistent with Scripture, first off, but you're saying that God's work is greater than Saul's work. The, the work that God did is greater than whatever mistakes Saul made, because that should apply to us, too. We will make mistakes until the day we die, or until the day the Lord comes, especially in this generation. But whichever comes first, either way, you're going to keep making mistakes. So if your mistakes are what weigh against you in terms of salvation, then this is not grace. And God has always been about grace and faith. He's shown grace to those who have faith. And he has shown irresistible grace by transforming the heart. So let's look at a couple arguments and see what the responses are. The first argument is God regretted making Saul king, which we just read. This was in 1 Samuel 15, 11. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. So, does that mean that that's evidence that he, God changed his mind and Saul lost his salvation? Well, not necessarily, because in 1 Samuel 15, verse 29, a couple of verses later, and also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. Glory of Israel is God. For he is not a man that he should have regret. There you go. A couple of verses later, he doesn't have regret. He doesn't have regret like men have regret. Numbers twenty three nineteen. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and he will not do it or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? Another proof for predestination. But the main thing is God doesn't, when, when it says, when God says, I've regret that I've made Saul king, he's not looking back as we would look back because we're not omniscient and we say, gosh, man, you know, that actually was a bad decision that I made to make Saul king. Do you think that God being omniscient and who predestines everything, who declared the end from the beginning, Isaiah 46, 10, that he would look at this and say, you know what, that actually, eh, I've changed my mind about that. That wasn't a good idea. That's not at all the God of the Bible. So what is he saying here? God is experiencing regret. You can discipline your children. You can. I, I used this example last time. You can have a puppy dog, and you know it's going to chew up your, your whatever shoes. You're just going to pee on the floor. You know you're going to have to discipline that dog. You expect that. You know you will have to take them to the vet, and maybe they might get sick. Like, you know that. That's predestined in a sense. Like, you, you know for sure. Well, when you... When it comes time to experience those things, going to the vet or going, you know, disciplining them, you will feel regret, you know, you'll feel sadness, you'll feel various things, even though you knew that was going to happen. So you can experience things and even though they're predestined in a sense. How much more so is it for God who is omniscient and predestines everything? He can still experience 
have emotions and have experiences in time with us and express those emotions, but it doesn't mean he's changed his mind. He always knew what was going to happen with Saul. Of course he did. He's omniscient. He's predestining everything. He gave Saul as a king, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, but he gave Saul as a king to the Hebrews because it's exactly what they wanted. They were looking for appearances, and he wanted to make a point that what they're looking for is not going to deliver them. And so he knew. So is he having a change of heart? No. He's just experiencing an emotion. Okay. It doesn't mean that he changed about he no, here's the thing. It doesn't mean that he changed his mind about saving Saul. He changed his mind about making him king. Or I should say not changed his mind. He had regret about making him king. So he experienced an emotion about the decision that he had to take, which is giving them a king that they would that it would fail them ultimately because it was a it was a template for a future king, which is David and Christ. So he's not having regret about giving Saul a new heart or making him a new man, as we talked about in the very beginning. He's just having regret about bringing Saul into the kingship. That's all. The second argument is, well, the spirit left God, left, left Saul, so you know the spirit was taken away. Therefore, Saul lost his salvation. So let's take a look at this. In 2 Samuel 7, 15, that's where we get this from. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, like David, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Oh, I think actually this is talking about Solomon. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think this is actually talking about Solomon. Yeah, it's talking about Solomon, how God's going to keep his steadfast love. He's not going to take it away like he took it away from Saul. Does that mean that Saul lost his salvation? He lost God's favor and so he was not saved? Well, it's a little more complicated than that. Because again, this is pre-cross. So let's look at the next one. 1 Samuel 16, verse 14. David and Saul's service. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Which, by the way, is another proof text for evil. A harmful spirit from the Lord. The Lord ordains good and evil for his purposes. Everything has a purpose. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Okay. So what was this? Well, this, <laughs> what was the purpose of this? If you read later, David and Saul's service is so that David could come and play the harp for Saul and kind of get worked into that whole network of, of comforting Saul and becoming a little more favored. That was the whole point. So the Spirit of the Lord left Saul and he was tormented so that David could come in. It was He was using Saul for his purposes. 1 Samuel 18, verse 12. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was put, was with him, but had departed from Saul. <laughs> Very insecure, right? 1 Samuel 19, verse 23. And he went there to Naoth in Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah. This is Saul now. Saul is getting the spirit again. And he too stripped off his clothes and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? This was after the spirit of the Lord left Saul. So it came back. Okay. So what's what's the point here? Well, remember first off Balaam too, Numbers 24 too. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe and the Spirit of God came upon him. Balaam was not saved. Balaam was a heretic. But God used him to prophesy 
the Spirit of God came upon him. Okay? In Revelations 2.14, Balaam is rebuked as a, as a, a reprobate. But I have a few things against you. You have some of you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who thought who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So Balaam was reprobate, okay? But he was, the Spirit of, the, of God came upon him. So what does all this mean? Obviously, the Spirit of God was not given the way it was after the cross. When after the cross, the Spirit of God is given in connection to being elect and saved. Once, you, once you're saved, that whole process is the Spirit of God indwelling you. You have the Holy Spirit. But it wasn't like that in the Old Testament. There wasn't a legal precedent for that. God didn't just give it out freely. People were clamoring to have the Spirit of God because it came with benefits. You could have skills, you could prophesy, you could, you know, you had favor. It was like, did God is God favoring you right now? Remember, it was, it was very, it was still works-based in some sense. I mean, they were in the Old Covenant. God was conditional with his spirit. He would use it, then he would take it away. But that doesn't mean he took away salvation. Taking away the spirit of God, you know, it's, it's, it's not like we understand the spirit of God having it today, like the guarantee of our inheritance. God's not going to take that away and, you know, you lose your salvation. That's preposterous. There's nowhere in the Bible that says that or anything like it. Because what would it say about God? But in the Old Testament, the Spirit entered and exited to and fro to accomplish God's purposes. And so the Spirit of God leaving Saul is not evidence that he lost his salvation. In fact, we saw in some of those earlier or later verses that it came back to him and then it left. You know, so it's just obviously God still had a role for Saul and Saul had a purpose throughout his whole life. He he had a rough life, but he he wasn't condemned. The third argument, the final argument, is that he had a breach of faith. So let's look at this idea of a breach of faith. Well, 1 Chronicles 10, verse 13. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. So he he broke a lot of commandments of, of God as a king, and so he had a breach of faith. But does breach of faith mean he lost faith and therefore he lost salvation? Or does breach of faith mean something else? And that's the question. And in Leviticus 5, verse 15, we can see laws for guilt offerings. If anyone commits a breach of, a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish. So a breach of faith was a type of sin. It's just a way that you could transgress God's laws. Joshua 22, verse 22. The mighty one, God, the Lord. The mighty one, God, the Lord. He knows and let Israel itself know if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. So what's happening here? Well, th- there's, I forget who which tribe this was, but I think it was the tribe of Reuben. They, they built an altar because they were farther away and they built an altar just, because they wanted to remember the Lord. They weren't trying to build an altar for idols or to, you know, worship other gods, but that's what the other tribes thought, and so they were confronting them about it. And so now what they're saying is, listen, if if that's what we did, 
whether it was a rebellion, full-on rebellion, or breach of faith, meaning like an unintentional sin or, you know, whatever, a lower-level quality sin. So it's comparing rebellion, outright rebellion, with breach of faith. Like, we did something wrong, but it wasn't like we were trying to rebel against God. There's a difference. The reprobate rebel, the elect can have breaches of faith. But in the end, it was fine. But anyway, it was just a miscommunication. But the point is, rebellion versus breach of faith. Two very different things. First Chronicles 9, verse 1. Genealogy of the returned exiles. So all Israel was recorded in genealogies, and these are written in the book of the kings of Israel. And Judah has was taken into exile in Babylon because of their breach of faith. Wait a minute. Is Judah still part of the plan of salvation? Yes, they are. They didn't lose their status. They didn't lose their salvation. They were punished for their breach of faith. But breach of faith does not mean you lose your salvation. That's the thing. Okay, so, so doubt and trust back in the old days before the cross were punished much more strictly. Okay, because especially because God was much more supernaturally involved and you still are going to doubt. Well, that proves, you know, that that person was reprobate. Or at the very least, if you're elect and you breach the faith, then yeah, you, you had to be punished right away. There wasn't grace for that. Remember, they were under the law, right? And so breach of faith, when it says in First Chronicles 10, verse 13, so Saul died for his breach of faith. The breach of faith does not mean he lost his salvation. He committed breaches of faith, but he was still saved. And I'm going to give you now a couple of really good solid responses as to why. The first is typology. Okay, so these are my responses. First Kings 11, verse 34. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of this land, out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes. Okay, does this say that David kept all the commandments? Like he was perfectly obedient? No, David was a sinner just like the rest of us. He, he had that census. He slept with Bathsheba. Now, he was a righteous king in God's eyes, but he was still a sinner. But David was a type of Christ. And so if David was the type of Christ, David was after Saul. Saul is like a type of Adam. It's like, again, there's a lot of typology going on. Saul disobeyed in many respects, and he fell from grace, right? He, he fell from it. God regretted that he was king. He fell from his kingly role. And David redeemed that role. David was the, in, in the context of those two kingships, David was the redeemed one, right? And David was a type of Christ. We know that. So Saul was a type of Adam in this relationship. There's the first Adam and the second Adam. That's happening throughout these two kings in their life and in, in, in the book of Samuel, in both books. So ultimately, we have to see that Saul was a type of some kind. And as we'll get later, there's, there's some other really interesting things about Saul that, that come up. But the first thing I want to say is salvation by faith is throughout the Old Testament as it is to the New Testament. And hopefully you know that. But, you know, we're all guilty of sin. doesn't matter how meaningless the sin is. We're all guilty. Saul was struggling with his sins until the end. Moses sinned. You know, remember he was... Uh, disqualified from the promised land, but that was something that God ordained to show his justice and his mercy. 
because he still let Moses see from far away. In 2 Samuel 12, 11 through 12, David is getting punished for his sleeping with Bathsheba. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you of your, out of your own house. By the way, another proof against evil, being predestined. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. Man, that's, that's brutal. So David's wives, that this was a punishment for, for David basically doing something in secret with Bathsheba. Moses sinned, David sinned, Abraham sinned, Isaac sinned, Jacob sinned. Everybody was, sin, was sinning, but they're all justified by faith. Okay, nobody is completely sanctified in their entire life. So when 1 Kings 11.34 says that David obeyed all the commandments, it wasn't an absolute statement. It was just a type, it was a typology for the future Messiah who would obey all the commandments. Jesus was perfect, he was sinless. So we're not saved by works. Everybody was a sinner in the Bible that was a hero that we know, like Moses and David and Abraham. And those who say that Saul wasn't saved are always pointing to his works. Because you say, well, why wasn't he saved? Well, because he did this and this and this. Well, yeah, that's his works. But your works don't factor into your salvation, whether they're bad or good. That's the whole point of grace. It's God's work that factors into salvation. It's election. It's God's choice. Now, the other thing that's really important is Saul was genuinely repentant in several places. Take it out. First Samuel 15, verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. So he was just insecure. That was the story of his life. He's insecure against the people, insecure against David. He was just battling insecurity. First Samuel 15, verse 30. A couple verses later, then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. So you got to ask yourself, Samuel was righteous in a sense, right? He was basically in good standing with God. Samuel would not have honored Saul's request unless God had forgiven Saul. Otherwise, you know, he, he, Samuel would be disobeying God. So this is really important. He, Saul was repentant and his requests were honored. Let's look at a couple more. First Samuel 19, verse 6. And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And so basically he he listens. He doesn't, he, he doesn't, want to kill David. He's, he's struggling with his insecurity. Throughout this, it's, that's why it's such an interesting case to me because it really shows the humanity of Saul and yet, nevertheless, the ability of God to save because Saul is struggling with his insecurities. He wants to kill David, but then he, he realizes it's the wrong thing to do. He's repentant about it. Look at 1 Samuel 24, 16 through 17. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. So he he knew, he was aware of what's going on, but he's just battling his own insecurity. And again, in 1 Samuel 26, verse 21, I have sinned, he, he said. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. 
Behold, I have acted foolishly and I have made a great mistake. He was genuinely repentant. And so, you know, this was this was predestined, of course, to show typology and precedence and, and God's mercy and God's forgiveness. God forgave him on a personal level, but he didn't forgive him, or I should say let him go on a, on a professional level, right? He got disqualified by, by his kingship because of the things that were ordained for him to make a mistake on. And, but he was saved. In the end, it doesn't matter because he's saved. That's why these, this whole thing of being held responsible is not something you take personally. God is using you to do various things, to, to reveal his glory. The, the things that he ordains for you to make a mistake on, he's not blaming you in the sense he's holding you responsible. He's coaching you and, and shaping you and shaping your attitudes and showing you the truth so that you could see. You wouldn't have seen it unless he had ordained for those things to happen to you. You wouldn't have seen God's mercy if he hadn't ordained for you to make a mistake so that you could plead for his mercy. See how that works? It all makes so much sense. So now if Saul was, wasn't saved, then what does it say about God? He gave him a new heart. He anointed him. He had faith in God. He had the spirit on him. He was repentant and he still wasn't saved? I don't think so. You know, it's, you know, the, the Old Testament was very big on God's name for his name's sake. And so was the New Testament. I mean, look at one, 1 John uh, chapter 2, verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Compare this to a couple ones, like Isaiah 48, verse 9. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. 1 Samuel 12, 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. There it is again. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. It's all about God's namesake. It's all about his name, his, his uh, reputation. So I wanted to say. It's God's name on the line. He's not going to let you besmirch his name when he's saved you. When he said he's going to save you, that's why this whole Arminianism thing doesn't make any sense. When God said he saved you, he's going to save you. He's not going to let you undo that work. That's not going to reflect well on his name. When he's giving you this Holy Spirit as a guarantee, that's his namesake. Imagine if you could undo that. What does that say about God's namesake? Nothing good. So, you know, you get a new heart when you're born again, when you're saved, when God gives you a, a heart of flesh but you're going to struggle with certain sins. That's everybody. In Saul's case, he struggled with insecurity. He struggled with a lot of things. And really it's insecurity because he was caring about appearances. What do the people think about him? Why were people liking David more than like him? He used to be the, the best looking guy in the block, remember? And we're going to get into that, which is why there's typology with Saul, of course, with everything. But Saul was still saved. It's not about what he did, it's about what God did. Remember, what does it say if Saul got a new heart, if he was anointed, if he had faith in God, if he had the Spirit, if he was repentant? What does it say if God took away his salvation? What does it say for the rest of us who are struggling with insecurity, with, with sins, you're, you're not perfect. Nobody's perfect. We're struggling in the process of sanctification. What does it say for us if that's the case? It doesn't say the good news. That doesn't give us joy. 
that gives us anxiety. So that's why I believe that Saul was saved. Now, three more tangents that I want to share with you before we wrap this up with Saul's life. The first one is God's punishing. There's other, you know, when God creates these various stories and people that were real, he has multiple tangents and purposes he's working. There's typology, there's tangents, there's, he's showing his qualities, his his justice, his mercy, all kinds of things are going on. And one of those things is God's punishment for rash vows and using even the things that happen for the good. So in 1 Samuel 14, verses 24, Saul makes a rash vow. And the men of Israel had, had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid on an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So he made this rash vow, ended up being that Jonathan is eating some honey. <laughs> and so he spares Jonathan. He vowed, you know, that he would basically kill whoever it is. But Jonathan, his son, uh, you know, basically ate some honey. He broke the vow. He didn't honor that vow to God. He, and he vowed to God in, in later in verses 43 to 45. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I have tasted a little honey and the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And here we go. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. But then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall be not one hair of his head fall to the ground for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. So again, he he listened to the people. <laughs> he vowed on God's name and he didn't do what he set out to do. So what did he vow? He said, God do so to me and more if I don't kill you. Well, did God honor that promise? Yeah, he did. So that's that's a tangent that's playing out. And look in 1 Samuel verse 20, cha- uh, ver- sorry, chapter 20, verse 16 and Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. Who was Saul positioning himself as David's enemy? Yes. So God was just in all the things that he predestined with Saul's life. You see how it all just kind of fits back into to one another? I mean, it's it's really quite crazy. Look at later in 1 Samuel 25. Verse 26, now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek you to do evil to you, to my Lord, gosh, if I can get my words right, those who seek to do evil to my Lord, be as Nabal. Nabal was just this guy that ended up getting killed because he didn't want to honor David. So who is trying to seek David's life? Saul. And so what happened to Saul? Well, Saul ended up dying. He ended up killing himself, but he had a, a pretty brutal life. So all these things are saying, you know, people used to make vows all the time, rash vows, especially using God's name. What is this? What is the tangent here? The tangent is God's punishing Saul and showing his justice for people making rash vows and using his name in vain and not commit. Like if you're going to make a vow, you better commit to it because what the Lord says he commits to. So he's not going to let you use his name, again, his namesake, and then, uh, you know, basically flake out on that and, and not commit to it. Now, the second point here, the second tangent, which is what I wanted to get to earlier, 
is God's punishment on Israel through Saul, while also setting a template for the Messiah. So this part is to me is, is very prominent. And if you look in 1 Samuel 8, verse 7, it says, The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Okay, so the people are wanting, a verse earlier says, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. They, they basically want a king to be just like everybody else. The whole point was that Israel was not like everybody else. They were supposed to be set apart. And if you look a little bit later in First Samuel 8, verses 19, this is the Lord grants Israel's request. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like the nations, and that all our that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. That's what they had with God. <laughs> you know, but yet they're placing their faith in something material and flawed. And when Samuel had heard all these words, the people he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Do you think God didn't ordain that? Of course he did. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city, and that's where they find Saul. But this is the thing. So you have to understand this in the greater picture of it. Israel wanted a king. They wanted to be just like everybody else. They had the lust of the eyes, just like from the very beginning where the Garden of Eden, where Eve was looking at the fruit and she had the lust of the eyes. It was desirable. She wanted it. She wanted what she saw. This was the lust of the eyes. Instead of having God as their king, which they couldn't see, they wanted a visual king. They wanted that physical world reality, that worldly, fleshly reality. Okay, and if you look in 1 Samuel 4, verse 3, this is another supporting verse. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Are they putting their trust in God? No, they're saying God has defeated us. You know what we'll do? Let's bring the ark. That's got some supernatural juju in it. It's gonna, that's going to save us. That's like an affront to God. And what happened was they ended up losing the ark on purpose because God ordained it. And then God used it to shame the Philistines too. And I believe Dagon, it's a whole interesting passage where you know, he, he crumbles the statue of Dagon and they ended up sending the ark back to the Israelites with, with some cows. I mean, it's it's a really just fascinating story, but God uses everything to, to show his precedence for justice and mercy. And the whole thing that's going on here is Israel is consistently placing their faith in physical things. They they wanted Saul as king. And if you if you look at Saul like his description, his appearance is like in 1 Samuel 9, verse 2, Saul chosen to be his king. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Like literally the Bible is telling you Saul was tall, dark, and handsome. Saul was it. He was he was man. He's that one that we want. He's that Messiah. But that's the fleshly interpretation of the Messiah. And so God used Saul to show what what the wrong way of going about it is. You're looking for the flesh and the world. You have to be looking for the heart. And I'm going to use somebody who's very good looking, but because of that, he's also very insecure to prove to you that 
That's not what you need. You need me as your king because you rejected me as your king. That's what he's talking about here. And even in 1 Samuel 10, verse 23, they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. I mean, they met, the Bible makes a point to mention this. This is not like some random detail. It's all about the, the lust of the eyes. You know, when, when Samuel finally, the prophet Samuel finally gave his farewell, he's talking about the material versus the immaterial. In 1 Samuel 12, verse 20, and Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Here it is. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. This sentence addresses the idolatry, addresses the fact that they're superficial, looking for saving, like for the ark, for example. That, that's a, It's an item. It's not God. God's presence can be in the ark, but the ark itself is it's a physical thing. And they're putting their faith in these things. And Samuel's like, listen, you, you have to put your faith in what you do not see, which is God. And if we look at 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, but now your kingdom shall not continue. This is about Saul. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept the Lord what the Lord commanded you. This is about Saul and David. So, the Lord is looking for somebody after his own heart. Why? Because he wants a, the Messiah, the, the true Messiah, is has the perfect heart. So God is using people like Saul to contrast David. Now David's going to have a heart. David is a type of the Christ who will be driven by fully a perfect heart. See how this works? You needed Saul so you can have David. You needed the insecure, superficial Saul, who you're still going to save, but, you know, he's he is how he is. But that was the contrast that was needed for David to appear because David is the more closer type for Jesus. It, it all makes sense. I mean, look at, for example, even 1 Samuel 16, where, where they're going to pick David. This is verse 6. When they came, he looked on Eliab, and this is David's brother, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. <laughs> So they looked at David, you know, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. Again, there's that thing about height, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Again, it's about the heart versus the outward appearance. Joshua, uh, sorry, John 7 verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. That's what Jesus said. Okay, Isaiah 53, 53, verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. This is about the Messiah. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. What do you think this is in context of? This is in context of this whole history of people choosing with the lust of the eyes and going by what they, by what looks good, but it has no heart. Hypocrisy of the Pharisees was Matthew 23 verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs. We talked about this previously, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Constant duality between this whole thing of like, okay, there's the lust of the eyes and what seems good, but it's not. The Lord looks at the heart and this, and God is setting a beautiful tapestry and precedent through these examples of 
a superficially chosen king. And God allowed that because he had to set the example and there had to be a reason for David, which is David's a reason for the Messiah. And you see how it's all tied together. So that's another theme that's going on in Saul's life. He had a purpose to play because he was tall, dark, and handsome. Now he's still saved, but he, God used him to show the dangers of insecurity and the dangers of Israel. It's almost like he's using that to judge Israel and to show them the futility of their own choices. So that's what's going on there. And again, it's the context for other things like David writing the Psalms. You know, in, in 2 Samuel 7, verse 21, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. David was very clear on predestination. He, he knew that God was in complete control. And all of this happened so that David could come to know it and write the Psalms. You know, Saul pursuing David made David rely on God. And David wrote some of the most beautiful Psalms there are about relying on God. So everything, he also wrote the Messianic Psalms. Everything had a purpose. So conclusion, final conclusion is Saul's case is complicated. But it shows that God punished Israel by giving them exactly what their hearts wanted to reveal the futility of the of the way they were thinking and also to set a template for the Messiah. It also shows that God punished Saul for his disobedience and for his rash vows and for using the Lord's name in vain. Like God takes that seriously, especially before the cross where there was no, you know, free grace for everybody, right? It was a lot more strict. David was anointed, but he was still afraid of being punished. There were plenty of times where David got punished, right, for Bathsheba. That's an example. And because of that, he wasn't allowed to build the third, temp- the second temple. It was Solomon who was going to build the temple. Do you see how God works everything in a just way? David had to do certain things, but because of that, he couldn't build a temple, so he needed a son. That that son was going to build a temple. But David couldn't be around because unless Saul came first. You see, so everything is related. And that doesn't, just because you're anointed doesn't mean you couldn't get punished. So ultimately, this this is a, the, the story of David and Saul is about God's justice, God bringing about this plan. Saul was the first king, and so the kings began the templates and the typologies for the, the Messiah, the future king, the king of kings. And so Saul was the very first of that template, which which was kind of relates to Adam, right? David was kind of the, the Christ typology, and Saul was the type of Adam. Adam was given dominion, but he was a, a flawed king. He fell. And in the same way, David and Saul kind of relate to each other. So again, you know, David's story and Saul's story parallel quite a lot. I mean, David was punished quite a bit. Obviously, David was a little more righteous in some sense than Saul. But these are just waves of prophecy coming through. You have to see these as predestined waves of of tapestry that God is weaving in this living story, which is history. You know, it shows the depths of human insecurity, not trusting God, not waiting on the Lord. And that's something that we all can relate to. But if, if those things will cost you your salvation, how many of us are guilty of that? And by you know, extension, would lose our salvation? A lot of people. I know I get anxious sometimes. I get worried, right? I don't trust God as much as I should. That doesn't mean you lose your salvation. So ultimately, you know, go back to, to the New Testament, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7. 
For we walk by faith, not by sight. You know, we, we walk by faith, not by sight, not by the things we see physically. We don't look at Saul's work and we see that physically and say, you see, he lost his salvation. No, I, I walk by faith, but by the faith that God is just and merciful and that when he chooses to act in somebody's life, like Saul, like he gave him a new heart, he anointed him, he gave him the spirit, even though he took it away a couple times, Saul was saved because of God, not because of what he did. That's the point of grace. That's the gospel. And we know God to be consistent. So Saul was saved. I really do think he was saved. And, and again, what does that say about God if he wasn't? What does that say about us in our story? It's the good news for a reason. It's the good news because it gives you good news. If somebody like Saul can be saved despite his many mistakes, then that's good news. So we got a couple more here, two more, Lucifer and Judas. Lucifer, you know, there's there's a lot of context for Lucifer about how he fell, but it's it's not that much. I mean, there's some in Isaiah, there's some in Revelation, the war in heaven. Um, you know, in Luke 10, Jesus says, I beheld Satan fall like lightning. Ezekiel 28 is about the anointed cherub and comparing the king of Tyre and, and how, you know, he was basically, Satan had this, the status, right, and status in heaven where he was very favored. But in John eight forty four, it tells us that you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. This is the Pharisees. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now compare that to 1 John 3, verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Same thing. So Christ said it once, and then John said it here. The reason of the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So it's very clear that the devil was sinning from the beginning, and it's reasonable also to believe, based on Romans 9, 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. We have predestined evil. We have reprobate. We have people who are not going to be saved. So why would the angels and Lucifer himself be immune from that predestination? If the cross was predestined, if election was predestined, if the kingdom was predestined, if all these things are predestined, suddenly the devil just kind of made the wrong choice? No. The, the devil was the villain of the story, and the devil was predestined. Now, that may, you know, cause a knee-jerk reaction in you, but again, evil has a purpose, has a great purpose. If there was no devil, there'd be no cross. Think about it that way. You know, God's thoughts are not our thoughts, and morality doesn't apply to the judge and the creator. He, he does whatever he wants to do, and... It's just. Whatever he God cannot do something unjust. Evil doesn't matter in the context of eternity because this is just a small slice of time. But nonetheless, evil was necessary for this slice of time. Outside of that, it's not going to even matter. But the devil was predestined. He was the most beautiful vessel created, but he was created for destruction. And that's that's a pretty kind of a Zen point right there, if you think about it. But he was the most beautiful vessel and he was made for destruction because he exemplifies pride. And pride is the greatest danger 
for us as self-aware beings. So God created something that would personify pride. Everything God does brings life and he brings personality. He, he makes a person out of something. He personifies things. He brings life to them. And so pride itself was given life through Lucifer so that pride would be judged and destroyed. And it had a purpose in this timeline. So the devil is not a case that you can lose your salvation. The devil is a case that evil was predestined. And so was the devil, obviously, for various reasons. But there's a lot of purpose to it because of the cross. The cross is predestined, and as long as the cross is predestined, evil is predestined. And we had a whole very long episode on that too. This one's pretty long as well, but ultimately, you know, these things are just hot topics, unfortunately, when they shouldn't be. It's very plain if you read scripture that evil is predestined because it has a very specific purpose. There's no need to reject that. And there's no need to try to rescue God from what he's very transparent about. Now, last but not least is Judas. Judas we talked about in the previous episode. And we mentioned in John 6, 64, there are some of you who do not believe. Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. He knew that Judas would betray him. And in Matthew 10, the 12 apostles, we know that Judas was given authority, 10-4. Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. They were given authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. So Judas was doing mighty works in Jesus' name. But remember, Lord, Lord, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Many will come and say, did we not, do, did we not prophesy in your name or cast out demons in your name or do many mighty works in your name? Think about Balaam. Think about false prophets. Think about Judas. All the people who do mighty works and who say that those things are what save you. That's not what saves you. It's a relationship with Christ that saves you. And how do you get a relationship? God has to determine that. He has to reveal himself to you. That's how you know it's genuine. It's not you trying to do it because then it's not genuine. So there are many people who aren't saved that were used by God. Nebuchadnezzar, Balaam, we use those examples. Saving faith does not mean religious activity. And remember this, remember John 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name. Again, it's about the namesake, man. That's so important, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So there's two ways to read this. There's the way that says, the father gave them to the son, and then the son lost one of them. Or the father never gave Judas to the son as an elect. Which way do you read it? I read it the second way. The father never gave Judas as an elect. Judas was never saved. He had the outward appearance. Again, it's about outward appearances. Constant theme. He was doing mighty works, but he didn't care about having a relationship. He was a reprobate person. He was always intended and destined to betray Christ. And he'll be destroyed at the end of the age because the reprobate are destroyed. So Judas was never saved. He killed himself. He was unrepentant. He was always, if he had been saved, he wouldn't have probably betrayed Christ. There's a purpose to everything. 
It is not proof that you can lose your salvation. Judas is not proof that you can lose your salvation. Judas is proof that there's election and that there's reprobation. Because if Judas did lose his salvation, what you're saying is that John 17, that Jesus lost one of his sheep that the Father gave him. What does that say about us? That doesn't give you good news. That gives you anxiety. So again, it's not consistent with the gospel. So all in all, guys, I hope this has been helpful. I want to close with a couple things. First and foremost, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 7. For God gave us a spirit of fear, not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. I butchered that. But listen, God didn't give us a spirit of fear. He gave us a spirit of power and of self-control and of love. And ultimately, that power comes from eternal security. If you can lose your salvation, let's wrap all this up. What does it mean? It challenges God's sovereignty to keep you saved. How can God try but fail at something? That doesn't make any sense. How could God want to save you, but he just can't? He can't seem to do it because you're darn free will. It challenges God's omniscience. If he knew you would reject him, why would he change his mind and and try to save you or, you know, whatever, like save you temporarily or even just die? This will be something later with the Trinity, but why would he die for you if he knew that ultimately you would reject him? And if he knew that you would choose to have faith, that means God is responding to your faith. And that makes him the most biased person there is. That's challenging his integrity. It challenges his character because he's changing his mind, his mood, but we know from Numbers 23, 19 that he doesn't change. If God predestined you, I should say if he predestined or if, if he was responding to some future faith that he looked in the quarter of time, he's responding to you, not you are responding to him. Who is sovereign over salvation? That's man is sovereign. There's no way you can get around it. And he's very partial for redeeming the people only that respond with faith. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible brings life to the dead. It also challenges the, the harmony in the Trinity, the, the harmony and the power of the Trinity. We know that the Father draws and the Spirit seals and the Son died and he's interceding. We know that the Father chose some people and gave them to Christ. So if you can lose your salvation, that means you're contradicting the work of the Trinity. It also means that Christ kind of disobeyed the Father in dying for everybody, even though the Father is very clear that the Father chose some people and gave them to Christ. Very clear. So it doesn't work with the Trinity. You can't be a Trinitarian and believe Arminianism, I think. <laughs> it's a rough statement, but I think it's true. Now, if you're the one that has faith, this is what it means. It robs glory from God. Unavoidably, it's going to rob glory from God. Again, it's you plus God equals salvation. That's not the formula for salvation. God's grace is what gives you salvation. And then you, you get sanctified and you participate in that. Of course, we're encouraged to participate, but we are not earning that salvation. We're not working to maintain it. It's by grace. It's the, the entire grace and faith is a gift from God. The entire thing is a gift. You don't earn it. You don't, don't do anything with your free will. And I think that we've turned free will into an idol in this country and the U.S. specifically, but in the world. Because it's ruled by the French Revolution, libertarian, Luciferian 
humanist philosophy. That we can be the masters of our domain and masters of our fate. We don't know who is elect. We don't know who isn't. It's not for us to judge. But at the same time, we do experience life as one choice at a time. We go present moment by present moment. But that doesn't mean that you don't have eternal security, that it's up to you to maintain your salvation. This is the dance of life. When people criticize once they've always saved, they either, they either focus on people's works, like with Saul. They say, oh, you see, he did all these things, so he can't be saved. Or they don't have discernment, like with Judas. You, like, you got to read with discernment because just because Judas had works, again, you're focusing on the works, so it's obvious. That doesn't mean he was saved, Right? Or they just read the libertarian free will idea into scripture. And they say, well, you see, it's all the times that we read those passages where it's very clear that scripture is speaking about God showing a precedent thing very matter-of-factly. He's not saying, gosh, I hope you make the right choice. Or here's the choice. Go ahead and make it with your free will. That's not what scripture is saying. So you got to take all this into context Thank you for, if you're still with me, thank you for being here. Been a lot of content. That's the end of the series. Please go check out the previous episodes. There's a lot of information on all those. But again, my goal with these episodes are for them to be a reference for you, for them to give you things to think about, things to to mull over. I hope at least one of these things have clicked for you and has really given you some, some newfound knowledge and clarity in this whole idea of predestination, eternal security. It really is so beautiful when you see it for what it is. It is God's genius at play. So I hope that I've helped you to see a little bit of that. Um, I hope it's been helpful to you. If you have any questions or comments, leave them below, or you can email me at tutor at danceoflife.com. And I'll see you in the next one. God bless. <laughs>